You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 521. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door, with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG headquarters in Lake Burton, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 12th of May, 2022. In today's episode, a Virgin Atlantic flight takes off with a first officer who hadn't completed his final flying test. An Aeromexico plane suffers apparent ice damage. More news, your feedback, and today's plane tale, Amy, wonderful Amy. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger. Flight 521 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger Stern. He's an award-winning TV and radio reporter currently at the number one all-news station in the nation. 1010 wins in New York City! Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guys show, an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and your great feedback. I am Captain Jeff, a pilot at a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, Georgia. And joining me today from her lakeside studio in South... Chi is a doctor, a skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated backstabbing jumper dumper, Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. It is so good to be here this afternoon. Really looking forward to today's show and catching up with you all. All right. And great to see you here, Steph. And also joining us from across the pond in Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire. Professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired Airbus A330, A340, captain for Virgin Atlantic Airways. It's Captain Nick. Hi there, Jeff. Hi, everybody. Great to be back on the show. We're only one short of a full house. That's true. And also joining us, haven't seen him in a while, from... His home studio in the air capital, low and slow pilot, old airplane enthusiast and engineer in the aerospace and defense industry, Nick Camacho, Macho Man. Hey guys, I'm glad to be back. Uh, We're glad you're back as well. And also, last but not least, from her studio in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, retired financier and aviation enthusiast, spreadsheet master, and our producer director, it's Liz Piper. Hi, everybody. All right. Great to see everybody. And as you said, we're just missing Miami Rick. And unfortunately, he is out there uh, working for a living, flying the all those uh, Amazon packages and such out there. So we miss you, Rick. Where's my, where's my stuff? Yeah, where's your stuff? I, I ordered don't know. it. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, let's move on to some news. Stand 
And this is news. This is breaking news. Um, I'm not sure how many of you will recognize uh, this man's name. I think most of you will because over the years um, he has sent us in uh, a huge amount of really good feedback, mostly audio feedback um, from New Zealand. Uh, Glenn Towler has flown west. He is just a huge, huge part of our APG community, and uh, we're just all just shocked that he is gone uh, from us. And uh, it wasn't that long ago that uh, he was letting us know that he was heading over to England uh, to attend the funeral of his mom, and he uh, got sick sicker uh, i guess he'd been sick for a little bit yeah he um, had so he thought it was kind of a respiratory issue a chronic bronchitis problem coughing and just generally feeling unwell for i think a little while maybe six mm-hmm. or eight weeks or so yeah, yeah that's what i recall mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. and uh while in england to attend his mother's funeral uh he got feeling much much worse and uh, checked into the national health service and uh, they checked him out and they had some very horrible news uh, that he that he had uh, cancer and uh, that uh, they needed to do some tests and do some things to help uh, relieve some of the the pain that he was enduring and the suffering and uh, I'm sure that Steph being the doctor can tell us a little bit more about this kind of thing but basically he got the news uh, just what was it yesterday? Oh no, it was a week ago or oh. less. Uh, it was it was a couple of days. He he knew that, that he knew. Okay, so he knew yeah. for a last. I mean, not not long, certainly. Yeah, not that five long. or seven that, days. That that uh, yeah that basically the, the the prognosis was not good that he wasn't going right. to be with us uh, for for much longer. And then you know I think even faster than any of us thought uh, he we received the news uh, this morning uh, that uh, he had passed. And uh, when uh, a fellow uh, Kiwi, uh, the flying Kiwi, uh, Lucas Diamond, uh, heard about the passing of Glenn, uh, he sent us some uh, some feedback, some um, something that he wanted us to to read on the show. And so here you go. This is from Lucas Diamond, the flying Kiwi. Hey guys. Some of you know that Glenn has gone back to the UK for the funeral of his mom and had gotten very sick. I've just received a text from his sister-in-law that, sadly, Glenn has passed. For those of you in the crew who met him, you know his enthusiasm for life was enormous, especially around aviation. I always found him to be a kind, sensitive guy who was always great to talk to and someone I really liked to go flying with. We didn't know each other well, but every time we met, it never mattered. We'd chat quite easily. Sadly, the last time I saw Glenn was a while ago due to COVID, etc., but we had a great late afternoon early sunset flight into the Marlboro Sounds, where we both moaned about bosses and life, etc., while looking at the wonderful sunset. On the ground, we had the customary beer and pizza, and then he was on his way. I'm sorry that we didn't get another flight. I'm still a bit shocked. Lucas. And there's a a photo from Lucas's airplane, uh, the sunset over the Marlboro Sound sounds uh, beautiful, beautiful, mm, um, mm-hmm. flying into the sunset, kind of a kind of a picture. Uh, we also have uh, some uh, pictures that uh, Nick had in his library. Uh, uh, just a quick um, 
perusal of the library to see if we could show you some pictures of uh, Glenn. Uh, this this one that we're showing right now on the screen is when Glenn was explaining to me what I was doing wrong with the uh, APG. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he had a few um, yeah. opinions, He's, ideas, yeah. I'm just constructive thing. criticism, <laughs> or just criticism, or just criticism. Yeah, I was. Con I don't really think that he was doing that. Uh, I'm not no. even sure I was at that table actually. Um, but that was at, uh, Pops and, and Hops, Pops and Hops. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, uh, at Oshkosh in 2019, that was the last time I think he was there. And the last time that, uh, that we were there as a crew, uh, that mm -hmm. was our last big, uh, you know, yearly kind of big meetup, uh, was Oshkosh in 2019. And Liz is, I th go ahead. Sorry. I, I was just gonna, I thought this was a classic. He pitches up to one of our events wearing an opposing basis t-shirt <laughs> yes, and a Boeing hat. So I'm going, really, Glenn? Yeah, I think he did that good. on purpose for you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh -huh. Absolutely certainly did that. Yeah. That's why he has such a big grin on his face right That's there. Right. Yes. <laughs> God, Nick's going to hate this. Yeah, and I did. Yeah, exactly. Great. A uh, great yeah. meetup that was. Awesome. Yeah. You know, uh, I, Matt Buntingframe very kindly uh, um, had kept in touch with Glenn over the last few days, I think, and he got in touch with me saying that um, Glenn was very keen um, before he moved on, shuffled off uh, this mortal coil, coil um, to chat to a friend of mine. And he said, can you arrange something? Um, and uh, I, I thought, well, uh, yes, yeah, certainly. He wanted to meet the uh, quite well-known uh, aviation um, publicist, um, Ian Black, who is a photographer and uh, is the author of many uh, aviation books, uh, ex-Royal Air Force uh, fighter pilot and navigator before that, and then um, subsequently captain with Virgin. So, you know, I know uh, Ian very well, and I've interviewed him for Plane Tales. Anyway. Uh, as it turns out, um, Glenn was very keen to uh, to chat to Ian, so uh, I immediately got in touch with Ian, who replied, uh, you know, it took seconds for him to reply, saying, I know Glenn, that's brilliant, we've only ever spoken, I would love to go down to his hospital and um, meet him, uh, should we go together? And we were literally, in the point of organising that, we'd been communicating last night, we're in the point, point of, point of organising it this morning uh, to decide when we could get down there, how quickly we could get down there. And we heard the news that Glenn had got. I, I assumed we had a week or two at least before he uh, he would pass, but uh, very sadly we didn't manage to achieve that. Uh, but my thanks to both Matt and Ian for at least um, being open to the idea, and uh, I'm sure Glenn would have appreciated it, but... Sadly, we weren't quick enough. Yeah. Yeah, I, I met uh, Glenn a couple of times in person, um, and the, the ones that come to mind uh, most readily for me, uh, he ended up heading to Atlanta and spent some time with uh, Mike Carroll's, and we uh, uh, treated him to a baseball game, uh, the Atlanta Braves, and I don't remember who it was we were playing at the time, but a, a group of... APGers were there, and we had a we had a great time at the ballpark. And then uh, the other time, of course, that I met Glenn was at the place that I think he felt 
more at home than anywhere else on this earth. And it was Oshkosh and, or it is Oshkosh. And uh, he, uh, I think has been coined with the term, uh, mayor of Oshkosh. I mean that he seemed to know just about everybody that had anything to do with Oshkosh. Wouldn't you agree? Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to go to Oshkosh and anyone who attends with any regularity knows, knows who Glenn is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The people who went out of their way to uh, find him and meet him, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he was quite a celebrity. He was very well known in, in the international meetups in particular. So, uh, yeah, yep. he'll be sadly missed at Oshkosh, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, Liz, if you'll put up the um, slide there, um, a group uh, of uh, APGers are, who knew Glenn uh, very well. Uh, have put together a uh, crowdfunding um, uh, mechanism uh, to uh, raise some money so that we can properly send Glenn off and then have an an everlasting uh, remembrance of him uh, at Oshkosh. And uh, we'll put the information in uh, the show notes regarding uh, how you can do that. And it's uh, via PayPal. And, uh, you know, we're trying to raise the money to, uh, you know, we we're thinking something like maybe getting him a, a brick, you know, something to memorialize him and, uh, his, uh, yeah. yeah. I think the thought is to do one of the bricks there at the, the Brown arch where he kind of mm-hmm. famously organized pictures every year for, for the groups. Yeah. In fact, that picture we're showing right now mm-hmm. on the uh, video, you can see that arch in the background. And that, that was kind of a traditional thing every year, uh, every would meet. And I think that, uh, that Glenn is the one that kind of organized this every year to, uh, to meet at the, what do they call it? The Brown arch. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so, uh, yeah, man, I, I tell you what, it's just comes of a shock, uh, comes as a shock for, you know, when you know somebody and you're close to somebody and you share a lot of the same, um, perspectives and feelings about an enthusiasm for aviation and, and then to have them just snatched away like this is just, it's, it's hard. So. Yeah. Yep. I, I agree. I was thinking, you know, this morning uh, when I found out, I was trying to think back, and I'm pretty sure that Glenn is the first person, like first podcasting person that I ever met. You know, out of the, it's become such a huge community between all the various aviation podcasts and everything. And I remember riding the bus, you know, from the main part of Oshkosh going north over by the what they call the Super Eight Gate for the uncontrolled airs. Uh, uncontrolled airspace meetup and i have i was trying to think about when it was i have no idea what year it would have even been but it was a lot of years ago maybe 2013 uh that we were riding the bus there and started chatting and he ended up we were going to the same place so i was thinking through that this morning i'm pretty sure he's the first you know first like uh virtual person i ever met Mm -hmm. in real life yeah, he was involved not only with APG, but all all the other great yep. aviation oh, podcasts yeah. out there, PTUK, uh, and uh, Airplane Geeks. I mean, I think he did some some a lot of reporting for them uh, over the years. Uh, so, wow, I yeah, I, I really don't know what else to say other than you know, Glenn, uh, Godspeed. We're gonna miss you, and uh, and here's a toast. Cheers, to Glenn. Cheers. Cheers, Glenn. You he made a big used impact. To end his audios, Glenn out. Yes, Liz said he always used to end his audios, Glenn out. Okay. 
I think we should move on. Mm-hmm. Okay. I just got to get myself together here. All right. Let's do this. This might be the easiest way to introduce this item in our news notebook, and it is via a video. First, it'll have a new exclusive video just into our newsroom minutes ago. Our clearest picture yet of the landing pulled off by that passenger with absolutely no flight experience who grabbed the controls and landed the plane in West Palm Beach when the pilot had a medical emergency mid-flight over the ocean. Incredible. Tonight, for the first time, you will hear from the air traffic controller who made it all possible. Good evening. I'm Felicia Rodriguez. I'm Todd McTimmer. Thanks for joining us here at 11. Getting through those very tense moments took steady nerves, teamwork, and careful instruction from the Jupiter man who was only at work today by chance. We have team coverage for you tonight of this mid-air emergency. Our Tara Jakeway just wrapped up an interview with that air traffic controller who is nothing short of phenomenal. We begin with Ari Haidu, who has the timeline of the incredible landing. Ari? And I heard somebody earlier today refer to this gentleman as a passenger pilot, and I'm pretty sure that's not supposed to be a real thing. But it was today, and somehow that passenger pilot with zero flight experience got that plane on the ground safely. This is not your ordinary landing of a plane. You just witnessed a couple passengers land that plane. That voice is air traffic control at Palm Beach International Airport. Did you say the passengers landed the airplane? That's correct. Oh my gosh, yeah, no, great job. Great job doesn't begin to describe this. The landing of this Cessna caravan comes at 12.30 Tuesday afternoon at PBIA. But let's rewind a little to when the person on board this plane first radioed air traffic control in Fort Pierce. I've got a serious situation here. My pilot has gone incoherent. I have no idea how to fly the airplane. Uh, Roger, what's your position? I have no idea. I see the coast of Florida in front of me. Uh, Maintain wings level and uh, just try to follow the coast, either north or southbound. We're trying to locate you. Four minutes later. You guys located me yet? I can't even get my nav screen to turn on. It has all the uh, information on it. You guys got any ideas on that? Eventually, radar locates the plane just off the coast of Boca Raton, and that's where air traffic control at PBIA takes over, talking the passenger through an incredibly safe landing. This is the first time I've ever heard of one of these being landed by somebody who has no aeronautical experience. Aviation expert John Nance says it's not the first time he's heard of a passenger landing a plane, but it is the first time for a plane as large and as complicated as the caravan. The person on the airplane who had no aeronautical experience listened very carefully and obviously followed instructions with great calm. That's what made the difference. Absolutely. It's absolutely amazing. At this point, the name of that passenger has not yet been released, nor has the name of the pilot who suffered the medical emergency. We do know that pilot was taken to the hospital, but we do not know the pilot's condition. As of right now, the FAA is investigating. We're live tonight. Ari Height, WPBF 25 News. And they mentioned that air traffic controller. I'm John Shingman in Palm Beach County with the remarkable story of an air traffic controller who helped guide a small Cessna safely to the ground at Palm Beach International Airport. The pilot of that plane, one of the passengers who had no flying experience, but had to take over when the initial pilot became incapacitated. Never had anything like this happen this crazy. I've heard of it happening at other places, but not to me. Robert Morgan, an air traffic controller at PBIA, was on a break Tuesday when a co-worker's alarm pressed him into service. They tell me, hey, there's a 
pilot is incapacitated. I've got a serious situation here about the pilot. We need you to help them. Since you're a flight instructor, we think you can do it. Morgan steeled himself. Took a big deep breath. I sat down at the radar scope and I said, I'm talking to this pilot now. Morgan hadn't flown the particular Cessna model, but used a picture of the cockpit as an aid. Told him to keep aiming at the big pavement and just start reducing your throttle so that you can start a slow descent. And, and I just kept giving them the altitude readouts. And all fire crews out there, the uh, aircraft now about a five mile final, appears to be inbound now. Emergency crews were ready on the ground. I tried to keep him calm and he was a very calm person already. So it worked out great. It led to a successful touchdown. Kind of adrenaline rush, but I, I was like, kind of almost shocked myself that it worked. The pair getting kudos from other pilots. Did you say the passengers landed the airplane? That's correct. Oh my gosh, yeah, no. No, great job. No flying experience. No word on the status of the pilot, but the two passengers on board were unhurt. Flight bag. As for Morgan, his plan is to get back in the air tomorrow. He's got another lesson to teach. John Shaman, WPTV, News Channel 5. Yeah, so, wow. Talk. You know, the thing <laughs> that is amazing about not only just landing this airplane and you know we have the video of it and and it, and the guy did an amazing job i mean it's Fun, abs like remarkable like absolutely but, phenomenal but the, you know what the thing that's even more remarkable that they didn't mention in either of these two videos mm. is the fact that before he got everything under control so when when this thing first happened and the pilot went incoherent uh the the and he slumped over the yoke that airplane took a nosedive and it descended 4,000 feet in 30 seconds, I think I read. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was basically almost out of control. And this guy somehow managed to level the wings and pull it out of the dive without overstressing the airframe and got the thing under control, which is a phenomenal thing for mm -hmm. someone who... It's phenomenal for someone to have that presence of mind to do that, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so... Uh, um imagining that he was already sitting in the right seat but yes. maybe not okay that's why he um, called himself a pilot passenger pilot because passenger. he was sitting up in the in the right seat okay yeah so he's already sitting there but yes. i mean still if he has no flying experience you know that's not um i think it still takes great presence of mind and um awareness and and courage really to realize the severity of the situation and act on it quickly enough to prevent a bigger tragedy or to prevent tragedy yeah very, very so what that yeah. proves to all of us stuff is that anybody can, can fly, fly one of the these caravan. caravans that you fly <laughs> just well, kidding that was the comment i made i think on somewhere i said the, oh, the yeah. caravan so easy a passenger can fly it um <laughs> no i i mean seriously i i i hope we get to hear more from this uh passenger at some point because just listening to his voice on the radio he's he's very Calm and collected, and he obviously was calm enough to, and, and had enough um, just presence of mind to be able to listen to the instructions that he was being given, follow those instructions, to not panic. Um, I think that'd be a very panic-inducing moment for most people who are not pilots to find mm -hmm. themselves at the control of, um, I mean, Caravan's not a huge airplane, but it's not uh, 172. Um you know, it's it's quite a bit bigger than that, and it's a turboprop. It's not a piston engine, so it responds a little bit differently. And there's a lot more. Um, just there's just a lot going on if you're not not familiar with flying an airplane. So, yeah. I hall boxes says actually probably it was a U.S. Navy SEAL who enjoyed years and years of black budget pilot training. 
yeah. likely story. But of course, his real identity couldn't be revealed. Exactly. So, so uh, I looked for uh, some current uh, pictures of the uh, of the airframe, the November three three three. Lima, Lima Delta, Delta. and Delta. this is one that uh, I guess it had the uh, floats on it uh, or the amphibious mm, I'm sure it does floats. a lot of flying in like the Caribbean and right. Bahamas and things. Mm, yeah, in fact, it took off from... Uh, from somewhere in the Bahamas, I yeah, saw. Yeah, from like, Marsh Harbor, Harbor mm-hmm. in the Bahamas, and you can see the flight path there on FlightAware, and then right, you, uh, it's kind of easy to tell uh, exactly where, the problem, where the problem occurred, and the thing just started diving and taking a sharp left turn and uh, then he basically recovered it and got it pointed in the right direction and then, of course with mm-hmm. the help of the air traffic controllers uh, they uh, managed to get him uh, safely on the ground mm-hmm. uh, the other thing that it mentioned was that uh, you know uh, he the air traffic controller who was also a flight instructor uh, got a printout of the layout of the cockpit and of course if you'll see uh, some of the pictures that he had of the layout of the cockpit it was nothing actually like the real layout of the cockpit. And this right here. This is uh, the actual cockpit. This is the yeah, actual so it's got one. a G1000 in it and a lot of, uh, you know, advanced displays. It's not just basic six pack instruments in that, that caravan. Right. Um, wow. Yeah. So, the, you know, a lot of technology going on there. Um, and if he's looking at a completely different layout, you know, that's not where all that information is located. Um, so this, this passenger had to kind of interpolate all that information and figure it out. I'm sure they probably at some point realized it had a G1000 and not, um, you know, he's telling them, I'm looking at two large screens, um, you know, with all these, all these digital readouts. Um, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's not, uh, in some ways it's intuitive, but really only if you have that training and background and experience, you know, right. um, you know, it almost makes me wonder, um, had he, you know, at least like looked at flight simulator software before, or, you know done anything along those lines I'm, I'm not sure they didn't mention anything about it so maybe not yeah it would be interesting to hear if he had any kind of background I mean, even just a exposure. little even just a little bit you know would be would be very helpful but yeah mm-hmm. you know that was that was in the back of my mind not not for, to take anything away from no, this no, guy no. and this amazing <laughs> ability but i wonder how many of our listeners would secretly have loved to be in that situation exactly that's exactly it was at the forefront of my mind but this would be your one chance to, yeah. Yeah. Ah, i yeah. really did it yeah i mean you know and i talked about you know certainly not a not a um trainer aircraft by any means but um you know to pick a a turboprop to be your very first ever um, flying experience. Um, you really can't do any better than the Cessna Caravan with a PT6. Like that's just, um, it, it is you know Great relatively forgiving. For and, yeah, I mean it's 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 forgiving um, in terms of you mentioned overstressing the air airframe. Hard to do in that aircraft. It really is, um, and it, it'll tolerate a lot. You know, and it's it's um, if you get it set up correctly, configured correctly, um, very good chance of getting it down safely. So. Hats off to everyone involved, in, including that flight instructor, because I think that's probably um, the position I would have uh, relished to be in the least. Yeah. Having to provide the instructions. Uh, this is from one of the air traffic controllers involved, Chip Flores, uh, in the uh, landline group on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He says, yesterday I was in a very small way involved in something that has become quite the news story. Millions of people now have listened to my voice, but that was only the very beginning of the story. What transpired and the outcome was a result of a massive team effort and everyone doing their part. On the news, you can hear me telling a passenger to keep his wings level and start descending. 
What you can't hear is that the second that call came in, I had immediately put it on the speaker in the room, and now every person in the tower knew the situation. What you didn't see on the news was that every controller in the room was now diligently going to work to help this person. This was an all-hands-on-deck situation, and every hand stepped up. What you don't see is that person working next to me, who's supposed to be directing the uh, plane's taxi on the ground, and he's a trainee, and his trainer's behind him. And now both are now making calls to the controllers at the radar facility above us and telling them the situation, letting them know, hey, there's a major problem. We have a situation and we're looking for this guy. We need more information. What you don't see is my supervisor standing behind me, offering up ideas of how we can help, how we can find this guy as he starts making a call to the hotline that goes straight to the command center in Washington, D.C. What you don't see is that on the other side of these calls, there are now even more professionals diligently going to work. At Palm Beach, in the radar room, a group of controllers are making calls and working to locate this distressed aircraft, and their supervisors are making calls. They call up to the tower in Palm Beach, and another room full of controllers is springing into action to prepare emergency services to go out onto that airport. They pull a controller who's a flight instructor off of his brake to come help. Meanwhile, another supervisor supervisor is on his way up the stairs into Fort Pierce Tower because it's all hands on deck and the more, the better. At the same time, someone in Washington, D.C. is identifying who that aircraft was supposed to be talking to and is passing on any kind of helpful information that we can give to that pilot. A phone number to reach another radar room full of professionals ready to spring into action. All these things happening at the same time and everyone doing the best they can with the limited information they have access to. The airplane is too far and out of the line of sight of my radio antenna. He can no longer hear me, and I can hear very little back from him. But at Palm Beach, a flight instructor or controller has pulled out an emergency backup radio and is telling a man how to fly a plane and saves two lives and one airplane. I get word of a safe landing from someone on a call behind me. The point is that to most people of the flying public, You get on a plane and you arrive at a destination and it happens seemingly by magic. But in reality, the national airspace system is one of the most complex creations of humankind, but it is safe, efficient, and runs every day like clockwork. And that is due to the professionals that make it all possible. When any pilot's having a problem, I'm the voice, or a major problem, I'm the voice that reaches out into the darkness and says, everything is going to be okay. I'm going to help you. That's that is the job. It's our job. I'm proud to be part of this team and proud of all my coworkers and colleagues who made this successful story possible. Wow. Ah, yeah. That's a well-written piece. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And, and super important insight to know, you know, just how many resources are available. So, right. you know, I think that's good information for pilots to know as well. You know, if you're, if you're in a emergency situation, the better everyone knows about it, or the sooner everybody knows about it, the better. So yep. you can put all those resources to work. Okay. Absolutely. Well, that was an exciting story and amazing. Uh, almost by, uh, I'd say, uh, well, I think we have minor miracles throughout our lives almost every day that we just don't recognize. But this is a major miracle I, in my <laughs> yes, book. Yes, yes. This I, I agree with that. I agree. Yeah. All right, let's move on to the next news item. Uh, This is from the Aviation Herald. Um, Accident, cargo carriers SH-36 at San Juan on May 4th, 2022. Gear up landing. An air cargo carrier shorts 360. Yes, kind of one of those Shorts Brothers products that we uh, talked about or Nick talked about on a recent plane tale. 
Um, and I think that uh, they did a modification to the Schwartz 360 that actually makes it somewhat sexy. We were talking about. Uh, <laughs> yes. uh, if you show, show the next one, Liz, how streamlined. Look at that. Isn't Ooh. that slick? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah less, take the gear away less and boxy it looks appearing. like an airplane. What, <laughs> what a good job they built it like a box because it had a nice flat floor to land on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They were performing flight uh, 787 from San Juan to San Juan, Puerto Rico, uh, climbing out of runway eight uh, when the, uh, that's confusing, from San Juan I, to San Juan. No, I'm sure they were going somewhere else, but they left San Juan and then came immediately oh, back okay. to San Juan. Yeah. Probably. Oh, um, wait, no. Or um, maybe it was San Juan, a no. uh, different country. Maybe. Lots of San Juan. Well, looking at the, the map, which is another overlay. No, nope, just think. San Juan. San Juan, Puerto Rico, San Juan, Puerto okay. Rico. They, they kind of did lots of circles. No other they might have got there. confused and thought they'd gone somewhere else, but they, <laughs> <don't look like laughs> they did. <laughs> I'm just reading the words. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, just like a, one of the news presenters, you know, just looking at the, uh, what do they call it? Just that? like the, Ron uh, the, Burgundy. Yeah, like the, Ron, teleprompter. the teleprompter with Ron Burgundy. He will read anything you put in me. <laughs> he will. Uh, anyway, was climbing out of runway eight when the crew leveled off at, a, at about 1500 feet due to problems with the landing gear and position for a low approach to San Juan's runway 10. The aircraft subsequently climbed to 4000 feet, performed a number of high G maneuvers in an attempt to lower the gear again. Then another low approach to Isla Grande Airport's okay. runway nine. Isla Grande, close enough. Okay. Isla. Okay. And, uh, or was it Wesla? Um, and subsequently <laughs> yes. positioned for a gear up full stop landing at San Juan's runway eight. The aircraft came to a stop on the runway. <laughs> I love it. Well, look, what n- else is it going to be? Is it going to be a touch and go? <laughs> <laughs> they put down some slip and slides. And, it's uh, a full stop landing. Yeah, it's yeah. going to be a full stop landing. Yeah, exactly. So uh, we showed some pictures there. Liz, one should pop them up again. Uh, the... Uh, uh, looks like very little damage, as you mentioned, Nick. The way it's designed uh, really did help out. Uh, yeah, yeah. They, they they built they they build it like one of those cardboard boxes that uh, you get from Amazon. Mm. They're really hard to break. It's built like so, a brick uh, You can imagine how strong that is. <laughs> this is a good one. Liz just said it's it's built like a brick short house. <laughs> Wait, that's a good. That might be I'm a really. That down. I'm writing that, it down. That's right got to be the title a right there. Brick short house. Yeah, okay. I like that. <laughs> okay, I love it. Uh, nice job, Liz. Uh, and nice job to the pilots getting the airplane on the ground safely. Um, all right, moving on. Perhaps Nick would like to take this one. Yeah, Nick. Captain Nick, would you like to uh, address this particular news item, number uh, 01, letter C? Yeah, I'd love to. Where would you like me to send it? Um, Anywhere you want. (laughs) (laughs) So the title is Virgin Flight Turns Back to Replace Pilot Who's Not Done Final Flying Test. Virgin Atlantic. And this is from The Guardian, so thank you very much, Guardian. Uh, Plane returns to Heathrow after a rostering error meant first officer didn't meet Virgin Atlantic protocols. Well, I think that's a little bit loose. I think we'll go as far as to say that uh, he wasn't authorised to uh, be with uh, his captain on that particular flight because his captain needed to be a trainer. We'll find out more. Virgin Atlantic aircraft turned back to Heathrow after it emerged that the first officer had not completed 
his final flying test. In other words, he was still under training. The A330 jet was nearly 40 minutes into its journey to New York on Monday when the two pilots on board became aware of a rostering error, the airline said, Ooh, as if by magic. Oh, I've just become aware. Whoops. <laughs> yeah. Flight VS3 had reached the skies above Ireland before returning to Heathrow, touching down more than one and a half hours after it took off. A replacement first officer was found hiding in a cupboard. I'm sorry. A replacement first officer was found, <laughs> and the plane departed again for New York. Virgin Atlantic insists that safety was not compromised, and that is a very fair thing to say because even a first officer under training is uh, going to be very knowledgeable, and uh, the captain was certainly capable of flying the aircraft on his own regardless. However... Um, the initial first officer joined the carrier in 2017. He was fully qualified under UK aviation regulations, but had not completed a final assessment flight, which is part of the airline's internal requirement. And that's a little bit, uh, a little bit offside because I think the Civil Aviation Authority uh, have to um, sign off all the company's training uh, requirements. And uh, you'll probably find that they have something to say about how quickly you can qualify someone to fly or not. PS3 <clears throat> turned back as the captain had not been designated as a trainer. Well, he wasn't qualified as a trainer. He was just a, uh, an ordinary captain. I, I'm surmising from what is written here. And there's nothing wrong with that. Captains actually are responsible. One of their duties and responsibilities is to further the training of the first officers who they fly with all the time. Uh, but he wasn't designated as a trainer. Uh, the first officer uh, and the captain, the latter holds the ultimate responsibility for what happens on a flight. Yeah, okay, that's the captain. Uh, the VS spokesman said due to a rostering error, flight PS3 from London Heathrow returned. Okay, we know about that. Uh, first officer was flying beside an experienced captain. Well, to be fair, most Virgin, well, in fact, all Virgin captains are pretty experienced. They have quite a high standard uh, for minimum hours to even uh, enter your captain training. Uh, and he was replaced with a new pilot to ensure full compliance with the Virgin Atlantic's training protocols. Awful lot of uh, word uh, music here. Uh, we apologize to the inconvenience, fair enough. And the spokesman for the regulator, the Civil Asian Authority, said Virgin Atlantic made us aware of the incident. Both pilots were suitably licensed and qualified to undertake the flight. Um, the fact is that uh, when you're doing your... Uh, what I suspect uh, was your uh, line orientation flying, um, which what you call it, it states, uh, you have to fly with a suitably qualified captain who can uh, train you to do all the things you need to do. And uh, it sounds like uh, the rostering sent an ordinary captain along with this first officer. And surprisingly, they didn't um, discuss... Uh, amongst themselves, uh, the um, level of experience of the first officer and what you know, what he was up to, etc. Uh, they seem to have managed to fly details, details it's not uh, without actually discovering that the first officer was still doing 
his um, his line training, uh, which uh, surprised me a little bit because normally the Doesn't crews are quite chatty. Yeah, and the first officer, if he's under training, usually has a training folder, which he'll present to the captain when he arrives and go, um, you know, this is my training paperwork. And uh, the captain will go, yeah, okay, well, we've obviously got to complete this, this, and this task during this flight. Uh, yeah. So anyway, uh, it sounds like they didn't go through that little preamble. Yeah, so they was- never discovered that they weren't qualified to fly together. Yeah. I put a lot of this on the first officer, like, you know, not making the point, uh, something doesn't feel right about this. This is my initial operating experience or operational training or whatever. Uh, somebody should have like put threw up a big red flag there and go, wait a minute, are we supposed to be doing this together? You know? I, yeah. Uh, well, apart from that, uh, rostering, uh, when they, put people's names together there are usually codes written beside their names to indicate what standard they are whether they're a, you know senior first officer junior for what the qualifications are and uh, it would have probably had something against his name on the crew sheet uh, perhaps it didn't uh, but, but this is not the first time this will have happened other companies might have got away with it but somebody obviously uh, found <laughs> found out what, what do you think they were talking about in the cockpit that made this come up 40 yeah. minutes. Well, I suspect the first officer was going, well, what does this switch here do? And the captain was going, oh, for God's sake. <laughs> so, uh, I'm not a trainer. No, I'm only joking. Uh, yeah, good question. I suspect the first officer was probably very professional because, you know, if he was coming up towards his line check uh, to qualify him completely, then uh, he would know an awful lot uh, and was probably very keen and eager to show off his skills, and the captain thought, well, this is a very bright young first officer. So, uh, Or he may have even been a well-qualified first officer who was just changing to another type. So mm. this might have been just been a type conversion. I, I don't know. It almost sounds is, like that because it says he joined the company in 2017. So Yeah. It, he, he would have been. Yes. <laughs> yeah, he would have awful, known how this all awful goes. Awful long training. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, so Otherwise, this is not yeah. the first time that he's been in on an indoctrination line check yeah. or IOE or whatever you want to call it. I'm thinking yeah, maybe at some point he's going, oh, something just doesn't yeah. feel right about this. Hmm. So Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I'm with you, Jeff. But on the other hand, the, if the captain's a nice chatty chap and takes an interest, then hopefully he would actually have discussed with this guy what his previous experience was and, you know, where he was in his in the because you have to have a feeling for the bloke you're flying with, otherwise you think to yourself, um, how far can I trust him to do something difficult if it comes up during the flight? I mean, will he have seen this before, um, or will it be a, a you know first time for him? So, uh, I mean, it's, it's not the worst that Virgin have done. Um, the the <laughs> when I was in the company, are. Uh, chief pilot who was at that time only qualified to fly the airbus you know you can't be qualified to fly both the boeings and the airbuses at the same time so he he had converted to the airbuses and he was down in johannesburg uh, uh on a normal trip and uh, when he arrived at the airport uh, to fly his aircraft uh, back home again uh, 
after a couple of lovely days in Jobo, he looked through the um, airport windows to discover there was a 747 part there. <laughs> so hmm. what the company had done was the Airbus that was due to come down that uh, Tony would have taken back up to London again had gone unserviceable, and they thought, ah, the only spare airplane we've got is a 7.4. Let's send that. Oh, that's a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) But do we have any pilots to fly it back? Unimportant. We'll figure it out later. Somebody probably would have said, well, Tony used to fly the 7.4. Oh, he could do it. No problem. No problem. It's like riding a bicycle. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, I'm Tony uh, to be, mm-hmm. you know, to bless his cotton's hocks, to- told the passenger exactly what the problem was be- has been. They sent down the wrong airplane. I can't fly this home. I'm very sorry. We're going to put you up in a hotel and we'll try again tomorrow. <laughs> I love it. So the last, the, the CAA's comment makes it sound like they didn't even have to turn around. Yeah. Yeah, it does a bit, doesn't it? I mean. Because it's only an internal airline thing, not a. See, you know, uh, I guess they wouldn't have investigated thing. it if it uh, just continued on. And I don't know. Well, if it's possible, it doesn't sound like a very good idea. But uh, I mean, I don't <laughs> no, know exactly no. what the guys said in the guy's license. But yeah. in order to fly with with you know with a non qualified captain, he would actually have to have a type rating and be fully qualified on on type. I don't know if he got that far, but. Uh, Anyway, let put it down to experience. <laughs> uh, I'd like to point out that, quite rightly, the, they say the passengers were in no danger, absolutely no danger. This first officer was probably doing very well indeed. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, between the two of them, they could have conducted the flight entirely, I'm sure, without any hassle. Uh, mm-hmm. He was probably only a couple of training trips away from finishing his uh line training and um you know that's it's a matter of it's probably more an administrative problem than anything else yep yep mm-hmm. all right well i think that uh oh you know what one of the things that may have uh kind of raised the red flag uh for the for the captain was when the first officer pushed the switch that no pilot would ever push. <laughs> yes <laughs> Oh, no, no, but oh, wait a minute. I'm still waiting to find out what that switch is. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. uh, that was from Mazus in our live audience. Hey, if you want to uh, join this uh, great bunch of folks that uh, join us uh, each and every week in our live audience when we record this thing live, make sure you sign up to follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and where we put out uh, notices when we're going to rec- record the show live. I think you'll have a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of our, yeah, I was going to say I'm a big fan of uh, Tim Van Ram's comment on this past story. And what did he say? He said, couldn't they have just substituted a caravan passenger for the first officer? Hmm. I'm sure there was one sitting down the back somewhere. I, you know, I'm i sure there were a hundred <laughs> flight sim um, people down <laughs> the back. Know, they would love to have the chance. But, but they didn't know uh, of uh, the skills of uh, caravan passengers until mm-hmm. after this whole thing happened, and, I yeah. believe. Mm-hmm. So yeah, That's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, now they know. Uh-huh. All right. Let's move on to 1D. Uh, Aeromexico Boeing 787-8, registration 966 Alpha Mike, performing flight 179 from Tijuana to Mexico City. 
Mexico, departed Tijuana's runway 27, climbed to flight level 390 en route, and at 1850 local time, entered a number of holds on descent to Mexico City, descending from flight level 270 to flight level 200, leaving the holds at about 1915 local time. Uh, so about an hour. Uh, no, not even that long. Uh, 25 minutes. Uh, the aircraft landed subsequently on Mexico City's runway 5 right at 1929 local time. A post-flight inspection revealed damage to the nose cone. You can go ahead and show that damage uh, list, please. Uh, the nose cone, left and right wing landing lights, and multiple penetrations of flaps, presumably caused by ice. Um, hmm. I'm thinking, well, I guess uh, hail is considered ice, but it's not something that it's I would refer to ice. as ice. I would usually uh, call it hail. Yeah, hail, for sure. That that definitely looks like hail damage there. And uh, the weather at the time, at least at the airport, it was not pleasant. Uh, let's see, broken 2,000 with cumulonimbus, overcast 8,000, uh, four statute miles, uh, thunderstorms in the area, lightning uh, uh, in cloud and cloud to ground. Uh, and it just uh, the, the whole couple of hours right around that time was kind of nasty weather. So I believe there may have been some kind of a weather system in the area. And let's throw that uh, last one up there, Liz. Oh yeah. It looks a little bit uh, severe. I'm not sure what we're looking at here. Um, Steph, you're the, um, uh, the, the meteorolo mm. meteorologist in training. What kind of mm. chart is that? I've never seen colors like that in, in a weather <laughs> No idea. Charge. It might be like an enhanced satellite view, actually. I bet it is. It's red. Yeah. It's bad. It's extremely red. Dark red yes. where they <laughs> yes. were holding. Yeah. It's almost black. Yeah. <laughs> it, whatever it is, I'm sure that is meant to indicate um, probably the worst of, you know. Yeah. Don't go there. Don't go there. That's where they that's were. That's where they're holding. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Yeah. No. Oh, by the way, uh, anyone tell me what um, LTG, which I'm thinking is probably lightning, but what's mm -hmm. ICCG that's tagged on the end? Uh, that's uh, lightning, uh, ground, I, let's see, ground um, in cloud uh, and cloud to ground. So it's lightning in cloud, IC is in cloud, okay. and CG is cloud to ground. Cloud to ground. Mm -hmm. That's very, very good. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, so there's lots of lightning uh, at the airport, at least. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, I was curious about this too. Is it like one giant hailstone that that dented that radome? I don't think so. I think that was a like a huge concentration, like and they were flying hail. into it in that yeah. direction. Yeah, and it just kind of collapsed. Like, I've, I've seen this before with airplanes mm -hmm. that have flown through hail. Yeah, so it's it's not super uncommon, right? Like, it's right. not just like one bowling ball sized hailstone. No. You would, yeah, you would think mm -hmm. that. I'm just surprised that it. it uh, no, I, I think it was that. a duck that was flying through the thunderstorm, and just as he got out of it, he went, "Oh, thank oh. the Lord for that!" <laughs> 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 just when you thought it was over. Yep, yep. You'd be oh, wrong. God, I survived that. <laughs> well, so rude awakening. Yes, unfortunate. All right, uh, let's see. Next one here. This is interesting. Um, this is from, uh, let's see, businessinsider.com for some reason. Uh, Russian fighter jets found with GPS uh, taped to the dashboards. Uh, Russia, uh, Russia is taping basic GPS devices to its fighter jets <laughs> dashboards, the UK's defense minister said. If you can believe these UK people, 
Uh, ben Wallace said this was due to the poor quality of Russians, Russia's own navigation systems. Russia's military hardware, much of which appears outdated, is being tested as the invasion drags on. Wrecked Russian fighter jets are being found with rudimentary GPS receivers taped to the dashboards in Ukraine because their inbuilt navigation systems are so bad, the UK's Defense Secretary Ben Wallace said. Speaking at the National Army Museum in London Monday, Wallace commemorated those who died in World War II and called Russia's invasion of Ukraine senseless and self-defeating. He added that there was evidence suggesting Russian military hardware was being pushed to the breaking point by the invasion of Ukraine. GPS receivers have been found taped to the dashboards of downed Russian SU-34s, so the pilots knew where they were due to the poor quality of their own systems. The result is that whilst Russia have large amounts of artillery and armor that they like parading, they are unable to leverage them for combined arms maneuver and just resort to mass indiscriminate barrages, he added. Uh, Let's see, the SU-34 was first manufactured in the Soviet Union in the early 90s, but is still one of Russia's leading fighter jets. Um, hmm. Wow, that's kind of sad, isn't it? In an odd way. I mean, I was going to say, Very I, refreshing. That, that looks <laughs> not unfamiliar to me, but well, I was going to say, I, I have literally flown all over this country with that. I know, GPS like Nick, Nick and I, Nick and, and I kind of looked at each other, GPS like when it came up, the picture yeah, came up, you, and we were like, yeah. but you guys are flying. It seems all right. <laughs> but see, it's like a different, it's a different mission that they're doing over there. So, yeah, you know, just a ex- little bit. Just expect them to have a little bit more sophisticated equipment. How many G can you pull with one of those things taped on? Just hold on to it as you, you know, just make sure it doesn't like come untouched and whack you in the face. If it's gorilla tape, I think probably a lot. Be fine, be fine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think that was my I'm, favorite part of the story was the taped to the dashboards comment. Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What, what did he say? I mean, Nick, uh, I was saying to be fair, uh, f- uh, we in the Falklands War, um, we didn't have uh, GPS fitted in the aircraft, the fighters that went out there, the Harriers and the helicopters and like. So uh, this was a, a, a common technique. Just to you know, get get hold of a GPS unit and slap it in an airplane somewhere, um, but that was forty odd years ago. So I'm just wondering why the Russians are hmm. resorting to it now. Uh, having said that, I think you guys have been selling the U- Ukrainians GPS jammers. So hmm. you know, I don't know how um, sophisticated these dashboard um, GPSs are, but I think. Uh, the Ukrainians are probably making a very good job of fooling them anyway. Mm-hmm. I-Hall Boxes uh, makes a lot of comments in our live audience. He says they must be uh, the GPSs for the hike after getting downed by mm-hmm. Ukrainian yes. jets. Sensible. Sensible. Yeah. Got to be thinking ahead. Yeah. All right. And then finally, no, not finally, almost finally, uh, this next one uh, from the Aviation Herald uh, an American Airlines Boeing 757-200 registration November 173 Alpha November performing performing flight 279 from Edinburgh uh, South, uh, well, from uh, UK to uh, Scotland, I guess that would be, to New York, JFK. <laughs> Not South Carolina. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, maybe there is an Edinburgh, <laughs> South Carolina Edinburgh. too, Edinburgh, whatever. Uh, I like my pronunciation better. With 113 people on board was descending toward uh, New York's JFK airport. When the aircraft experienced an abrupt maneuver causing a number of flight attendants who were still clearing the cabin for landing to fall and receive injuries, one of them receiving multiple bone fractures. Okay, this happened 
Okay, I was thinking, this sounds like one that we talked about, and it is. Uh, back in uh, on the February uh, 13th of February, 2019, this is the final report. And uh, let's see, let me scroll down to the final report to uh, find out what they determined. Uh, the probable cause was the flight crew's failure to adequately monitor the airplane's airspeed, which led to the captain's aggressive control inputs to increase the airspeed. These aggressive inputs resulted in injuries to three cabin crew members. Yeah, we talked about this in, in quite a bit of uh, detail, and we surmise this is exactly what happened. Uh, just over over controlling the jet and not thinking about what's going to happen, especially to those who are up and standing in the back of the airplane. A uh, significant uh, effect uh, to the uh, negative effect. A lot of injuries. So not a big surprise at all that that was the just confirmed your yeah. earlier observations yep okay and then uh finally this one kind of interesting uh let's see you're thinking about proposing to your fiance or your girlfriend not yet fiance and you're thinking what better place than to propose at a tsa checkpoint in an airport <laughs> There we go. Well, you got nothing better to, better to do than stand no in shoes, line. No so, yeah. So here, get a get like take your shoes off and your coat and things, and um, you know, while they search through your luggage, I'm gonna um, just get down on one knee and mm-hmm. propose. Why not? Because you probably found this ring on the floor. Um, <laughs> let's see. Uh, <laughs> uh, so Got to take advantage of this. Uh, according to the caption, a man reached out to airport management to plan a proposal for his girlfriend. Uh, the caption read, "Everybody, everyone dreams of a security pro- proposal, right? Huh? Shoes off, rings on. We can't think of a safer place to propose that in security. Happy. Yeah, I think that uh, that she's probably going to just read him the riot act after they finally get <laughs> somewhere private. What were you thinking? I was going to say, in this guy's defense, he's taking like set the bar low to a whole new level. Like your next yeah. major life event. Yeah. It, like, yeah, but it wasn't as bad. Like, it, was, it was better <laughs> yeah, than that. Exactly. <laughs> Remember that time <laughs> that I proposed to you at the TSA life. checkpoint? Just look at yeah. your engagement ring. Yeah. Ooh, my. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, fail. Big fail. Definite, definitely a, a major fail on his part, we believe. Anyway, I don't know. Maybe she thinks it's romantic. I don't know. You never know. All right. So it's now time for us to get all caught up with what has been happening uh, between the uh, shows. And uh, I think we're going to have to go right straight to Nick Camacho, who hasn't been with us for a while. He's been uh, doing a lot of business uh, with his his job in the aerospace industry and such. But while he was doing that, he was out of town. He wasn't in Wichita in the suburban area, but, uh, something did, uh, visit, uh, very close to where he lives, um, a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, you'll remember that there was quite a, a weather event, uh, in, uh, happening at the time. And I think we have some, uh, footage. some footage here, some uh, drone footage of this, uh, mother nature event. Uh, let's see here. And where did it go? Oh, you know, I haven't loaded it yet. Damn it. Uh, hang in there. Uh, uh, while you're looking for that, I just wanted to point out that Tim Van Ram made a great comment about the uh, 
the MIG story, and it just hit it a second late, so we couldn't cover it. But oh, okay. After uh, Nick Anderson was talking, Captain Nick about, was talking jam, about jamming GPS jammers, he said, "I use GPS jammies so I can find my bed." Oh, that's sweet. I, that I, love <laughs> I love those jammies. Oh, Tim Van Ram. Useful after you've been like you know out at the bar or something, and you're confused <laughs> right. about where your own bed is. Right. Okay, so now we have on the screen, and we'll have it in the show notes for you to look at as well, uh, some amazing footage from a drone of the tornado that hit uh, that suburban Wichita town. And uh, Nick, I understand that you uh, know some people that uh, kind of live very close to that area. Yeah, yeah. So the uh, this video that we're looking at, this is... Uh uh, if you, this is, uh, we're looking east and the, the tornado is kind of traveling south to north. And if you look at, so from this view right here, my parents' house is about uh, half a mile to the south. So just off the right side of uh, this view. Um, so wow. this tornado went through our town and I think they said it, uh, the total path of the tornado damaged uh, just under a thousand structures, including destroying three or 400. I think you see here as it goes through this little neighborhood, poor little neighborhood. It's literally like a scene from the wizard of Oz. It almost doesn't look real to me. Like all the roofs being just pulled off the houses. I don't, I don't think I've ever watched footage of this, like uh, of a tornado. This has got to be hugely important for meteorologists and scientists and how these things form and how they do the damage. Cause there was a couple of uh, one of the shots I was looking at, there were things happening to some structures that weren't even, didn't seem even that close to the funnel itself, but you could see yep. that the, and you can see one of the weird things. So like you said, I was in California at this time, but you know, talking to my wife and my parents, uh, one of the weird things is it gets, uh, we've had, so I've had one tornado go through our town back when I was maybe five. So I remember that. And then, you know, the other, uh, cells that have been like in the area, no tornadoes right near us, but, you know, being close enough to the associated cells that you can kind of see the, um, the weather, uh, patterns, it just gets incredibly dark and the sky, you hear all these people talk about how the sky gets kind of green and that's super true. And the weird thing about this one is it was so light and it was so normal looking, you know, you look at some of the videos, there's, uh, you can go on YouTube and search it and there's just tons of videos. I said it was maybe the most photographed tornado which kind of makes sense you know you'd expect that to just be an upward trajectory as, as technology increases but like you know you look at the background of this video and it's almost sunny back there which is crazy to me uh, and there's not all the rain associated with it so the pictures are super clear of all the debris and the it's crazy yeah, it's not there's not <laughs> a lot of you know just the the funnel cloud itself is almost uh transparent um i mean you can certainly see as it picks up debris and it picks up um, stuff off the ground, how it's, yep. yeah. And, and you can see how, how it takes the shape of the tornado. Um, but usually you see that before you see all the debris and everything else that gets kind of tossed into the air. So to see how it actually moves across those houses and you can see just, it's that upward moment. That's just literally lifting yep. those. And here, this one, you can see that it almost looks like the tornado isn't even reaching the ground. Like if you didn't see the, uh, cloud of debris, um, it would look like that tornado is not reaching the ground. So. It was an interesting evening. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah. So you uh, absolutely fascinating, but terrifying at the same time. Yeah, it's yep. such a beautiful thing to look at, but at the same time, yeah. wow! The just the fury of and power of destructive force of that thing is just amazing. 
And everyone was okay, correct? There were no... So that's uh, maybe the most amazing part of it is, uh, you know, back in 1991, it, it went through uh, the trailer park in our town. And obviously, I don't know how familiar everyone is with trailer parks, but those houses are not as uh, structurally sound and they don't have basements. So a lot of times, like in our case, the trailer park had a couple of storm shelters on each end of the trailer park. So you had to get from your house to the storm shelter. And unfortunately, a lot of people died. I think it was 17, 17 or 19 people died back in 1991. Uh, in this tornado, there was uh, no fatalities, one serious injury and four minor injuries or something like that, um, which is just insane. That's incredible. That's incredible watching houses, the yeah. destruction to those incredible. houses. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, you know, so it's pretty you, fortunate. You mentioned that how usually a lot of times these types of events are uh, there's a lot of heavy rain and it, uh, they call it a rain rain wrapped uh, mm-hmm. vortex where you can't really see it, uh, or not this clearly. And this is yeah. just amazing how clearly you can see everything here. And then I, I wish that I'd thought of it, um, before now, but you also sent a couple of uh, photos from your, from your parents' house, um, mm-hmm. regarding, uh, an amazing thing with, uh, one of the pillars in their, uh, uh oh, on their, yeah, yeah, their yeah. patio. Yeah. So or their my, back yeah, deck my, or something. Yeah. My parents' house is uh, kind of a rectangular shaped house and about 10 years ago, they got a basically like a roof put over their rear patio. And so it was a ex- gabled extension with like six, uh, with four or five, six by six pillars. And, uh, and that got ripped off of their house and basically flipped from the back of the house over the house to the front. Um, and it picked up one of those beams, which was probably 10 feet tall or 10 or 12 feet tall, six by six. And it picked it up and it moved it about 20 feet like in a vertical orientation and then dropped it directly back down through the roof. Um, and yeah, that picture is in- absolutely incredible. Like, and the more, yeah, <laughs> I was going to say the, the amazing thing is where it landed inside oh, yeah. the well, house. Right. Yeah. It, yeah. it came down. I don't, can I show these? Will it show up if I show them on my phone or will that not work? Well, you can like, try it. Let here. Let me, uh, um, <clears throat> put you on solo layout here and then we'll see if not, you can send them to me and then, uh, I can share them that way. Uh, yeah, the, um, this beam went straight down through the roof. Like, uh, like we mentioned, that's what it looks like. Yeah. You can see it. Uh, So that's the beam sticking out the top of the roof. And then, um, it went down through their ceiling and it landed right in my dad's TV chair, his little rocking chair that he sits in to watch TV. Unbelievable. Um, And that, that rocking chair was made by whom? Well, I thought it was made by my grandfather. And I, it turned out that that was not the case. Oh, okay. Well, whoever made it, some of the allure out of it. They yeah. make a pretty darn uh, sturdy, robust, sturdy, yeah, chair. robust, sturdy <laughs> chair. And so then, uh, you know, I've I've been spent the last couple of days um, over at my parents helping them. And one of the things I did I did was to go in there and um, my brother patched the hole in the roof the day after. But I went in there to put a piece of uh, wood just over the hole in the ceiling in the room. And that beam probably made like a 10 inch hole. And you can see those two uh, pieces of wood are their roof rafters. So that's like, those are like the structural members of the roof. So it went like directly in between those. Yeah. It couldn't have gone more in between them. Uh And I think that that part of the roof is going to be okay. So that's crazy. Super crazy situation. That is amazing. Incredible. Well, yep. Yeah. They'd have, you know what? They have tornadoes in Kansas. Uh, yeah, I don't think. 
Yeah. <laughs> Do they have them in Arkansas as well? Oh, yes. You know, they, okay. they actually have them. Uh, we live in the area that we live in is known as Tornado Alley, kind of the Kansas, Oklahoma, northern part of Texas. But they're becoming really common all over the place. Like Steph's probably we've gotten more in North Carolina than we've yeah, had so in Kansas Ontario. here the last few years. I was, mm-hmm. I've been talking to people about how the numbers seem to have gone down until this one. So. It's, I, I was I was watching a program and I don't remember it was probably on the Weather Channel um, or something similar about how Tornado Alley seems to be shifting to the east a bit. I think they were saying. Mm-hmm. Oh, so yeah, it actually reaches up into this area where I'm living uh, in northeast Georgia, mm-hmm. or at least I'm living until about That's fifteen long. days. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, I'm not living oh. here anymore. My oh, okay. my lease is up at the end of the month. <laughs> oh, I. Don't know if I do that. I have to put around either. <laughs> <laughs> well, you should come to the show every, every now and then, stuff. Hey, that's why I'm here right <laughs> no, now. Just kidding. You didn't tell Steph you moved to learn these things. House? Yeah, I do. Oh, yeah. Liz says, you didn't tell Steph you were moving into her house? No, I didn't. We were going to, I was going to surprise her, Liz. <laughs> well, it's actually, it's a house um, down the street around no. the corner, about a mile and a half from here. That's okay. okay. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, so we mentioned that you were on a business trip while all this was happening. And uh, yep. I guess you probably can't say a lot about uh, that kind of thing. Going yeah. On. I, it, uh, yeah. I was out there. I, we got, I got most of the stuff I was supposed to get accomplished, accomplished while I was out there. I had a few uh, rough patches. I think, um, you know, the last time you guys did the show, I was planning on trying to join you for a little bit. And then I uh, made a big snafu that morning at work. And so I was a little flustered and, and, you know, hurried trying to get that sorted out. Then I totally did the time zone math wrong. So you guys started chatting about like things happening. And I was like, I thought this was happening in two hours. And I like start looking through stuff and I'm like, Oh no, this is happening now. And I tried to sign in and then my headphones weren't working. It was just a, and then captain Jeff was like, you know, you should just Go ahead and take this. One I could off. just we tell that you were you anyway. had a lot of things going on in your mind, and this is yeah. one thing that you didn't have to worry about. Like, just get out of here. Yep. Yeah, we'll, we'll do the so, show without uh, you. Yep. So it was a uh, it was a, a little bit of a uh, I don't know. I guess I'd call it a frustrating frustrating week at work. But we eventually got everything we needed to get done. Uh, outside of that, I got to fly the C forty seven a couple of times while I was out there, so that was good. Um, uh, yeah, and I guess those are the the high points of my trip. Um, you know, it, uh, I got out there, I guess Wednesday night. So I was out there for a day or two. And then I had some friends that were, uh, moving from San Luis to Colorado. And I had like just sat down for dinner with them. as kind of like a going away dinner. Uh, cause they were leaving that weekend and I had just sat down with them. And, uh, and then I got a text from my dad that just said, tornado just hit the hat. Well, I take that back. I got a text from my wife as I was heading there showing our boys playing in, it was like a light sprinkle and very small hail. And she was like, Oh, the boys like the hail. And both of our boys were out on the patio kind of playing around with like pea sized hailstones. Uh, and then like 20 minutes later, we had just sat down for dinner. I had just sat down for dinner with my friends and I got a message from my dad that just said, uh, tornado hit the house. I'm okay. And I was like, what? What? <laughs> so, uh, so then maybe 30 seconds or a minute after that, my wife tried to call me. And, uh, the phone, like the phone call would connect, but she, none of her 
audio was like getting through it was super garbled so like one syllable would come through every three or four seconds so that was even more stressful so then i spent like the next hour trying to sort out what was going on between all the telephone issues because of the serious infrastructure damage and you know lots of phone calls just in general i assume so um probably not designed to handle that much uh, (laughs) bandwidth for everybody using their cell phones simultaneously Right. So then it turned into, uh, you know, I spent a bunch of the weekend trying to get stuff wrapped up with work. Cause I thought I was going to have to come home on Sunday and like run around and see the couple of, I needed to get to a couple of family members and see some family members all out there. So try to get all that sorted out. So, uh, once I got that kind of squared away, things kind of smoothed out and the rest of the week went okay, but got off to a heck of a start. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So. Glad everybody was okay. And your family. Yeah. Steph, you have to read this comment by Tim. It's about you moving in with Steph. Oh. <laughs> Tim Van Ram says uh, regarding the uh, moving into Steph's place, move over, Taco. Big dog moving in. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> right. Taco likes you. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, Taco and I get along fine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Truman doesn't like Good, me that much. but Truman doesn't like anybody, to yeah. be fair. He does He's a lot of butt, butt pushing. He does. <laughs> it's, his, it's his signature move. It's very yeah, bizarre. Enjoy that, Jeff. Yeah, well, stop, Liz. You know. Stop. Um, anyway. Uh, what have you been up to? Yeah, what, what have you been up to, Steph? Well, um, I did not have nearly as exciting or stressful week as Nick Camacho did. So, thank, I mean, <laughs> I guess thankfully. Um, I, we were planning to um, record part of the show together last week on Monday, I think. Um and then, um, man, I've just been busy and there's been a lot of flying to do. Um, just, it's probably too much to explain, but, um, between various, um, drop zones and skydiving centers, sometimes aircraft get shared around depending on aircraft needs. So there was a caravan, um, that was at our drop zone, which is not ours and needed to go back to, um, it had to go to maintenance, um, before going to its next, um, contract basically. Um, but, uh, I found out Sunday night that it needed to go almost immediately, um, to make sure all that happened, but we couldn't take it on Sunday night because there were thunderstorms occurring, not, not this past Sunday night, but the Sunday night, you know, prior to that. Um, and, uh, <laughs> both of our other pilots, um, were out of town the following week. Um, so I said, well, I can do it, but it's going to be Monday after work. That's just, I mean, you know, if we had known these things a little bit sooner, maybe that would have been a different story. But um, unfortunately, that needed to be done. And that's the time we were planning to do APG. So I'm sorry that flying kind of crowded out um, our chance to get together and, and chat. But um, I think that's probably the best excuse one can have. <laughs> I had to go flying. <laughs> for missing APG. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think so, too. I think so, too. So um, really pretty night for flying on, on Monday. Um, really hazy, actually. Um, didn't really make for good pictures on the way there. It was dark coming back, which was actually a little bit more picturesque because the haze uh, dissipated some and didn't interfere with all the pretty city lights and things. Um, so took the the quick plane there, the the caravan, and then back in the 182 um, into significant headwind. So that um, was kind of slow. But any nice communications flight. with the mythical? Uh place um um yes so there's always communications with with the mythical land of triad um (laughs) on that particular flight because Mm -hmm. um we traverse um the very southern uh, border of that airspace between the the drop zone and where our maintenance facility is located so i forget how many miles exactly through their airspace but 
Uh, talked to them for, for a fair amount. Um, did not talk to any of our, our friends there, though. Um, at least I don't think so. No, I did not. Um, yeah. I flew in, in and out of uh, that place um, on my you, previous triad. Uh, triad. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's what's actually on the chart. Um, uh, so it's not really that <laughs> They're doing mythical. a good job of hiding. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, they were, they were both uh, not working, uh, not working uh, at the yeah. time. It was a Sunday morning uh, in and out. Yeah. yeah. So. Do they ever work? Yeah, they do. Uh, one of them in particular does, uh, I've been told, works Monday evenings, but never seems to be um, on station or shift when I'm flying through. Or I'm mm. there too early, I think. Yeah. Mostly. Um, but anyway, nice night for flying. Um, kind of made it for a very long day because I worked, um, you know, my day job until about 4.30 p.m. and then didn't get around to taking off until... Six, so got to maintenance facility about an hour and 10 minutes later, and then buttoned up that airplane, made sure everything was tied down, put away, secured, um, pre-flight the 182, turned around, flew back, probably not back until about nine o'clock, just by the time I'd spent all the time on the ground doing other things and swapping airplanes. And then um, fortunately, when I got back, the um, groundskeepers who work all kinds of odd hours were there. Um, doing some tidying up and cleaning. So they helped me push the airplane back into the hangar. I didn't have to do that by myself. <laughs> that was very nice. Um, and um, man, it was just a, then it was just a busy week of work. I've been really, we were kind of talking about this before the show started. Um, it's good to be busy, but uh, it's cutting into my free time, which um, I have to do something about here sooner <laughs> or later, I suppose. A <laughs> um, lot of, um, have, yeah. You have free time? No, I have no free time. It's great. <laughs> Between marathon training, flying, and and like my actual job, um, yeah, I stay pretty busy. Um, but always exciting, you know. I, I just the weekends are nice. I enjoy doing all the flying. Still, um, so Saturday morning started off really beautiful, clear, like clear in a million, like complete opposite of what Monday afternoon was. Um, could see for miles and miles and miles. Um, but as was forecast for the day, the clouds started to build, and then we eventually got got rained out for flying, but uh, we probably flew several hours, three or four hours before that happened. So that wasn't too bad. Um, had another shout out on the radio. really think um, Charlotte uh, Tracon probably just knows my name by now and who I am. So hi, y'all. Um, sorry, <laughs> that was not me. Um, but uh, yeah, it was that guy down down there bumping his mic. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Yeah, you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but the person the person who did the shout out fessed up to it and perhaps we'll have a chance to meet up with them later this month as well. Yeah, like next yeah. week maybe. Yeah, perhaps so. Maybe. So, yeah. But that's always, right. always fun, always exciting. And then I don't think we did any flying on Sunday because it was too windy and lowish overcast. And I think we finally just called it a day. We didn't want to sit around and wait forever, which wasn't going to get any better anyway. So. Excellent. Yeah. And then then busy week this week too, just working a lot of work. So I'm mm -hmm. glad today today actually went much smoother than I anticipated. So I'm glad I got here for basically the start of the show. Me too. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh Captain Nick, how have you been? Uh, I've I've been okay-ish. Thank you very much indeed. Thank mm -hmm. you for asking. Uh, my back is not brilliant, but uh there you go. I've only I lived in the same Places, Dr. Steph, I think she'd have a 
constant <laughs> patient banging on her door. Yeah, sort <laughs> me, help, I'm stuck. Um, All the uh, shots. All the yeah, shots. exactly. Right. Give me the shots, give me the shots. Um, <laughs> so uh, not much going on, uh, but uh, I did manage to um, uh, tackle a, um, you know, a, a heat in the international um, extreme ironing competition. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Before speaking of... Um uh, extreme ironing competitions. We yeah. have uh, some feedback regarding that. Oh, um, okay. Hang on, let me uh, see if I can find that. It's three A. This is from Christian. Uh, good afternoon, crew from uh, sunny South Wales, UK. Not far from you, Rick. Or Nick. Uh, well, I guess it's probably relatively not that close, is it? Uh, South Wales. Uh, well, it's within a nuclear a missile striking distance. So, uh, okay, well, whatever that is. Okay. Anyway, he was uh, he or she was trawling through hundreds of pointless Facebook posts last night. <laughs> yes, they're all that way, and uh, came across this one. It seems that Miami Rick isn't the only one in training for the World Ironing Championships. This guy is taking taken training up a notch. Has this got Rick scared? And maybe Captain Nick as well. Uh, as always, guys, fantastic show. Keep them coming. Keep up the good work. I'm a PPL holder and a paramotor pilot. And listen to your episode regarding the Cessna and paramotor crash with interest. Safe flying. And here's a photo of uh, some people engaging in extreme irony. Now, it not, looks like he's ironing his butt. Th that's, he, yeah. <laughs> some like it hot. They do. It's kind of toast, getting That's toasty. Toasted buns, yeah. I'd call it. Toasted buns. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so not to be outdone, Nick. I believe that you kind of had the same idea with. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. I I took to the air. Uh, this was uh, this was a heat, uh, if you pardon the expression, <laughs> uh, in the extreme ironing competition, and uh, I I was sabotaged by this uh, idiot in a red. Um, Patra Wing, who was also, you know, flying around with his ironing board. Uh, have you dropped the bloody thing on me? Oh. I can't believe it. I mean, I was very lucky to live. I uh, Wow. And we have video of this then. You want me to play yeah. that? Yeah. 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 Okay. Please do. Here we go. I mean, so I he came very close to me. So I was shouting at him while I was trying to do my extreme ironing and had a quick spin there and there's another one see he's got his ironing body he's just lining himself up for it to drop whatever it is he's gonna throw, throw at me oh my gosh uh, oh, yeah and then some passerby uh, yeah yeah it was, it was not pretty i tell you what and that's why my back is so bad this week yeah no wonder. I, don't, I don't think you need my services. You need like a surgeon at this point. Oh, no, I tell you what, these these Welsh ironing board uh, pilots, they need to be given careless. a stern telling off, if you ask me. Wow. What, what can you say? It's been a tough week. It has, obviously. Wow. I'm Absolutely. so happy that you didn't get seriously injured in that in little well, incident. I was very lucky. I, there was a, a, a nice a greenhouse that broke my fall. So, uh, oh. Yeah. Oh, okay. Very good. Yeah. Very good. So I was, I was a lucky man. Besides the like uh, the very pedestrian um, stuff going on, uh, anything exciting? 
Absolutely <laughs> exciting. Well, I've got a brand new computer which I'm going to be oh. trying to fire up over the next few days, uh, which is going to be uh, super uh, if I get enough time. And uh, but um, uh, sadly, uh, I'm going to be nursing uh, Mrs. Uh, Anderson uh, over the next uh, week as well because her knee operation hasn't gone perfectly. And uh, some fibers have built up in the joint, and she's got to uh, be knocked out, have her knee joint manipulated to mm. break those fibers. And um, hopefully, that will then give her uh, the you know the level of uh, flex that she needs. But so uh, I'm going to be a busy man next week looking after Mrs. A again. Up to this point, actually, yeah, she's done pretty well, but she just can't bend it far enough for it to be called a success yet, which is a shame. But there you go. Mm -hmm. oh, uh, take the rough with the smooth. And that's about it, really. Uh, nothing much else is going on. Had a nice bowls uh, match this afternoon. bit chilly. Uh, the sun went in. It's fine at this time of the year when the sun's out. You know, you feel good, but a bit windy and cold. Mm -hmm. uh, we lost by one shot, oh. which was very mm -hmm. annoying. Mm -hmm. Yes, it was. That's not good. Uh, we, need to, we need to get yeah. some cheerleaders out there. Yeah, we, uh, Liz thinks that we need to get some cheerleaders uh, out there. To, uh, do they allow that in uh, these oh, matches? yes, definitely. Can I bring, uh, like, a bullhorn? A skip. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> drink excessively on the sidelines. Like those, those obnoxious sounding horns that you blow. <laughs> I think my idea of cheerleading <laughs> is not the same yeah, as yours. I, I'm expecting young ladies scantily very short yeah. skirts. Yes. Yeah, exactly right. Dancing around and With making pyramids and things. So, that's, uh, that's what I think of. Pom yeah, and not blowing bullhorns. I don't know where mm. you get that from. Uh, well, that sounds stuff. very rude. You can pitch up with the cheese. I'm pretty sure on that's what happened. If you want. I'm pretty sure that's what happens at the extreme ironing competitions of championships. <laughs> oh, well, that's fair enough. No, no, no. Yeah. I, can't, I can't hear you very easily from yeah. up there, and the, <laughs> particularly when you're underwater doing that section. Yeah, that's, oh, yeah. Uh, I can't wait. Ironing. I can't wait to see what is next in this extreme ironing yeah. thing. <laughs> the yeah. Underwater section. Okay. Yes, that, that that's what a tough one. It sounds. Um, Yes. Yeah. Hazardous. Well, Liz, uh, I've been I've been doing stuff. I, I flew that. We let's see. I flew a three day trip, and then I was off Thursday, Friday. We did the show last Thursday, and uh, I went out on that uh, four day trip starting on Saturday through Tuesday. And the reason that I did the over weekend flying was so that I could attend the uh, air, airline pilot guy community members, APG community members, Cheryl and Chris, who live in the Asheville area. And they um, ended up uh, doing the uh, wedding in a, um, a place close to Asheville called Weaverville and a really beautiful venue for a wedding. And uh, that's what I did yesterday. I drove up yesterday morning and, uh, attended the wedding and the reception. And then afterwards I went ahead and uh, booked a hotel in Weaverville and then spent the night and then uh, drove back this morning after having a wonderful breakfast at Waffle House. Uh, my, my favorite mm, breakfast place. I love it. Mm, it was good. Especially good this morning. Well, being a podcaster, you're used to waffling. Yes, that's true. I'm, I'm quite the waffler. Although I didn't have a waffle. I know it's called Waffle House, but I had the. Uh, do two. they actually serve a lot of waffles? Yeah, they do. I, do they? Okay, I feel yeah. like I only ever see like eggs and hash browns. And I just do the eggs and, and hash browns and and bacon grits. and grits and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but it was good. 
Anyway, uh, and, and then here I am. I got back uh, here uh, right before noon and got ready for the for the show. And here we are recording um, a week later. Uh, let's see. Um, so I talked about the. Uh, so again, congrats, uh, Cheryl and Chris, uh, and your nuptials. And uh, thank you very much for inviting me to uh, to attend. It was a, a lot of fun. Got to meet a lot of a lot of great people there. A lot of good friends of theirs. And, right. uh, I, before we do that, uh, okay. the, uh, this trip that I was on, I flew with a, a gentleman named Rob Kincaid and he is new to Acme. He just got out of training a, a couple of months ago. And, uh, so we were talking about this and that, and occasionally, you know, we'll, we'd talk about, um, uh, like DC threes and C 47s. I think I was talking about Nick, you, uh, being on the crew of Betsy's biscuit bomber. And then he said, so like the second or third time I heard him say something about Basler. And then I'm thinking, Oh, wait a minute. Did you say that you work for Basler? And he goes, yeah, I'm one of their um, uh, pilots and kind of check people out in our Basler conversions. And I'm thinking, Hmm, do you happen to know somebody Mm -hmm. that I know very well? And yeah. And I said, um, his name is Armando. And he goes, Armando carry on. It was like, he didn't even hesitate. I went, yeah. And he goes, yeah, I trained him. I gave him his second in command rating. I went, son of a gun. What a small world. And uh, so we text. What's that? That's my son's toy. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I thought it was coming from Steph because she kind of turned around and looked looked to the side. And so I thought, what what could possibly make that noise in her, in her house? Oh, I can't tell. Um, but, uh, he and Armando in special ops together. Uh, y- yes. Uh, Rob was uh, in the air force in special ops, um, was based, uh, down at Hurlbert and they flew all kinds of different airplanes, just very similar to the kind of stuff that Armando was doing. He said, yeah, I knew him and in, in the, the special operations stuff, the special ops, mm-hmm. special ops world in the air force. And then of course, you know, got to uh, train him on the Basler, um, DC three conversion and, uh, said, uh, sadly he was probably one of the worst pilots he's ever flown with. Um, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm In fact, I, I, I texted, I was going to ask you if you, if I've, he had made any other regrettable decisions. Besides. <laughs> <laughs> I took a, a self or I took a picture of Rob and we were at a little, uh, uh, Japanese, uh, ramen noodle place. And, uh, I took a picture of him when I, when I was like, Oh, wait a minute. I'm, make, I'm making a connection now between these two people. And uh, so I sent it to Armando. I said, you recognize this guy? And he goes immediately, oh, yeah, that's Rob. And I said, yeah, Rob said that you're one of the worst pilots he's ever flown with. And he he didn't even – he didn't take it seriously at all. He goes, yeah, right. Yeah. And then, honestly, Rob said that – I guess uh, Armando was going through with a couple of captains, and and he said that you know Armando was – he thought it was the strongest of the three of them and, and kind of wanted to give him – the PIC, uh, ATP, you know, type rating. Uh, but, um, yeah, that just didn't work out for whatever reason. But, uh, anyway, Armando, lots of good stuff. Uh, Rob told me about you and he thinks very highly of you. So anyway, it's just one of those small world things that we have in the world of aviation. Okay. And, uh, so I guess now we can, Oh, before I go, um, I'm going to tell you that, um, I have training, this upcoming week, uh, Tuesday and Wednesday with Brent Heron, my favorite first officer. Uh, and if you're another first officer that I fly with out there, I, I don't really mean it. I'm just saying that just in case Brent listens. Um, 
No, I'm just kidding. I, I do like Brent. Um, so we're going to training together on Tuesday, Wednesday. Then I leave on a trip Thursday through Saturday. I get home like, you know, before noon on Saturday, I think. So, uh, but I'm going to be, the reason why I wanted to mention that now that I'm remembering, uh, is that I'll be in Charlotte on uh, Thursday. Uh, get in uh, mid-afternoon and the 19th, um, the 19th of uh, May. And we're hoping that uh, Steph will be able to manage it. We're not sure yet, but uh, uh, have some kind of a... Oh, yeah, just the, the timing's a little uncertain, but yeah, yeah. we'll have time to, to get together at some point. Excellent. Well, I'm, I'm staying in the South Park area Correct. of town, and uh, so I'm sure we can pick something, a venue very you know close to the hotel. And, and uh, if you're in the Charlotte area and you want to come and meet up with uh, some like-minded folk, uh, just... Um, Con, uh, contact me uh, and send an email to uh, meetup meetup at uh, airlinepilotguy.com or just jeff at airlinepilotguy.com that'll work too and then we'll try to coordinate everything okay now let's go to the cover art from the last episode and our extraordinary uh, artist uh, in in uh, residence <laughs> uh, captain nick anderson came up with this beautiful what a beautiful shot of a very sad looking caravans <laughs> sinking very, caravans of various types. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's been a caravan yeah. heavy. I, uh, I misinterpreted so. what a uh, Cinco de Caravan uh, <laughs> represented. Uh, and it wasn't until I'd done this, this whole <laughs> landscape of sinking caravans did someone mention that that's not what <laughs> Yeah, sinking British caravans. (laughs) Yeah. Because here, no one thinks of a camper as a caravan. That's uh, No. Mm -mm. uh, There's a lost in translation across the pond uh, (laughs) moment for all of us. I'm afraid so. So I hastily had to add uh, an American flying caravan so that it made some sort of sense. Mm -hmm. Um, And and it's obviously its uh, floats have dropped off, which is why it's going to sink. Which is also (laughs) fitting because you could just... Recycle, you just recycle that caravan yeah. image into the next one too. Since we <laughs> yeah, this is very true. Good point. Very true indeed. Yeah. Now I just like to point out that uh, it was quite apt uh, that um, uh, Captain Jeff was mentioning wearing a special hat um, because I've put Captain Jeff's RV in the background there, <laughs> and uh, he's got a um, he's got a Mexican hat style satellite like dish. Uh, yeah, to which is what obviously what he's using to broadcast the obviously. show from. Yeah, on Cinco de, de Caravan Day. Yeah, that's kind of uh, sad, and, Nick. I oh really? I think yeah. he looked quite happy. But there you go. <laughs> I don't know why he'd be happy. Yeah. Look at the state of that motorhome. Oh <laughs> uh, well, yeah. Well, that's your driving. I'm, there's no <laughs> excusing that. I mean, heaven's sake. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Exactly right. And I even managed to find some frogs who were also caravanning. Uh, I'm not quite sure why they're there, but, you know, we like frogs. It all looks very Mexican. It's good. Yeah. I love all the reflections and everything else. Beautiful. Nice job. Yeah, well, that that was just me messing about uh, having fun because I had a quiet afternoon, so I had Mm -hmm. lots of time to do that. And then all of a sudden I had to brush an airplane in there for some reason. <laughs> well, you did a great job of that. It looks like you planned that from the very beginning. Uh, uh, well, thank you very much indeed. Yes, yes. I always have fun. Mm-hmm. So looking forward to this week's title to see what we can come up with. Okay. Excellent. Okay. Uh, so that takes care of that. And now I guess 
it's time for us to talk about those fine folks that are part of our Coffee Fun Cadre or Coffee Bar Club. And uh, let's play this from Jeff Smith. Johnny, how much more coffee? Sure thing. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Oh, yeah, the Coffee Fund. Again, as I mentioned, Jeff Smith is singing the Coffee Fund Java Jive. And he's doing that because we're going to talk about the Coffee Fund, your way to support the show financially. A couple different ways to do that. And uh, those are detailed on our website, aileronpilotguy.com slash coffee. Uh, the first is something we call the Coffee Fund Classic Method, and uh, basically a PayPal donation page. And uh, Mazuts Karim and George Hollis contributed via that mechanism. Thank you, guys. And Mazuts was in the chat room earlier. I don't know if he's still there or not, but thank you very much, sir, for your very generous contributions. And you too, George. And uh, the other way to uh, become a member of our coffee bar club is to become a patron of the show via Patreon. And since the last episode, we have, well, we don't have any new patrons. That's okay, because the ones we already have are great. And uh, this is here. Oh, the Mazutz is there. Hey, Mazutz, he's waving at us in the live audience. Um, oh, I should mention also that uh, that wonderful letter that uh, Lucas sent, the Flying Kiwi, he's uh, one of our patrons in the top tier. So thank you very much, Lucas, for your ongoing, very, very generous support of the show. And uh, now it is time for us to move on to the feedback segment. Captain, incoming message. Uh, <laughs> let's uh, start off with uh, this piece of feedback from Adam. Um, hmm, apparently uh, has something to do with Captain Nick's suffering. Hi, crew. I couldn't help but pick up on an imbalance of sparring towards Captain Nick in episode 516. Mean is horrible to you, horrible, rotten co-hosts. And yeah, that's, that's us. And, uh-huh. That's the yeah, worst horrible which the as worst. the gentleman he is he handled expertly i also have picked up along the journey of being an avid listener your constant strive for 50 percent accuracy and here the balance i feel may well be restored from a background in photography i feel captain nick may relate to the finesse of color spelt correctly with a with a u <laughs> yes calibration well done, Color, color uh, grading and all the effort <laughs> that goes into building and maintaining a strong brand. I wondered if it was a trick of the eyes, therefore, and Nick, do corroborate or correct me accordingly, that I couldn't help but notice something in the whimsical caricature of Captain Jeff used on the podcast. This recognizable character. Just hang on there, Liz. Uh, this, okay. This recognizable character with a full head of hair and magnificent mustache is a wonderful likeness. Save for one thing, a light Brown tint of aforementioned features that I cannot locate on actual photographs of Jeff. I have some of those photographs. I'll just have to show you them some other time. (laughs) And they were taken quite, quite some time ago, probably. 
the full head of hair and magnificent magnificent mustache and uh, admiral signature for sure. Uh, maybe an ad- admirable uh, signature. I don't know. Or maybe an admiral or admirable. Yeah, admirable. even that. Uh, however, the accuracy may well be brought back up to 50% if perhaps the brown tint be slightly slash totally desaturated. <laughs> wow. Out, out. In, in, He's in, talking about Captain Nick's suffering? No, yeah. Okay. I, don't, I, yeah. I guess. Uh, desaturate, I guess because of his ph- photographic um, um, sensitivities, apparently. Precision. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Good word. Uh, totally uh, desaturated in favor of the silver <laughs> that more closely <laughs> represents Captain Jeff's image. In full anticipation of now being made to ride in the bumpy seat at the back of the Acme aircraft. Yeah, you're lucky if we're going to even get on the airplane, man. Uh, I shall leave this uh, with you, Captain Nick, to get some justice for episode 516 and to bring that accuracy up even more. Your loyal passenger, wishing you all blue skies, tailwinds, and the memories of the colored hair that used to be. (laughs) Kind regards, Adam. So, Adam... This really made me uh, have a uh, have a, a big think, and uh, had to really, you know, really dig deep into my soul. And did you look at yourself in the mirror? I did. Uh, you know what though? It's funny. And Liz is asking me if I looked at myself in the mirror, and I do. When I look at myself in the mirror, honestly, I do not see the silver hair or the gray hair or white hair or whatever you want to call it. When I see myself in photographs, though, I do see it loud and clear. Like, who's that guy? Oh, that's me. And uh, so I've been actually thinking about making this correction for quite some time and just never have gotten around to it. I tried to do it myself, but it was just horrible. And so finally I thought, you know, uh, our Acme brand um, ambassador, brand manager, uh, Jim Mercado, the one that came up. Well, actually, he didn't um, come up with the actual little avatar thing, but he has been uh, helping us with logos and other uh, stuff. I asked him if he might be able to like that one right there, or Liz, that's putting on the screen there, the Acme fly Acme logo. Um, So I asked him if he might possibly take a look at uh, adjusting the uh, tint of my hair and mustache, the color (laughs) of my hair and mustache. And um, all the lack of color. Yeah. And I, um, he did that and go ahead and, and show it, Liz. I, I must Very say, nice. I, I look. I, I actually look really like, I'm, like it. I'm like 90 years old right here now, uh, but that's okay. <laughs> that's that's just the way it is. Um, hey, I'm, I have, have to accept. You're still you cross, cross-eyed. Yeah. I see. Sure. Yes. Well. <laughs> Yeah, I mentioned before that was uh, done by an artist that does the uh, animation, or one of the uh, many artists that does animation for The Simpsons. Um, but uh, and that's just like one I frame. I never knew that. What? How many times no. have I told this story? I, not to yeah. me ever. <laughs> yeah, were you not on the show? <laughs> yes. No. Uh, when Nick was uh, present, well, but consuming whiskey. Uh, maybe so. he was Tell drinking me. too much. <laughs> yeah. So okay, here we go. I'll try to make this a, the shortest version I can. Uh, when I started, how I got into podcasting was through a Catholic podcasting network, and uh, early on, I was not doing a podcast myself, but I was just uh, one of the people that were the, on the board of directors and and a big supporter of the show and. Uh, one of uh, one of the first years I was involved in this organization, um, Greg and Jennifer uh, Willits and um, Father Roderick, the uh, CEO and the and the president and the and the chief financial officer. Those three were uh, the uh, what do you call them officers in the um, nonprofit. Uh, they both had shows that were nominated for the 
worldwide podcast awards. And it was just one of the first years that they did this. And uh, they, uh, I think Greg and Jennifer won one of the awards and Father Roderick won two. And so they, uh, and I, when I saw them um, in the summertime, uh, before they were in this competition and won the awards, uh, I mentioned to them when I met them for the first time that I'm an airline pilot. I have these family and friends passes. If they need to use these for transportation or whatever, they're, you know, I would be more than happy to uh, help out with that. And they took me up on it, got a call from Jennifer at my layover hotel in Dayton. And she said that we would like to use some of those things to head out to California, Southern California, Ontario, for the uh, podcast and new media expo. Where we, where we can pick up our awards for uh, our podcast award. And I said, yeah, that'd be great. So I ended up going out there with them. While we were there, uh, we were at a uh, Marie Callender's or something, uh, just a bunch of the followers and, you know, big uh, supporters of their various podcasts um, met up and we were at this big table in the back of the restaurant and we were talking about what everybody does. And this one guy goes, uh, his name's Luis. And he said, uh, uh, I'm uh, an animator for The Simpsons. And Greg and Father Roderick are huge Simpsons fans. And you should have seen the look on their faces when they discovered that this guy sitting at the table was like one of the animators, as I said, one of the hundreds of animators for uh, The Simpsons. And he goes, hey, if you want, uh, you know, after everything closes, uh, we can go like tonight and I can give you a tour of the facilities they have a at the time they occupied wow. an entire floor i think the fourth floor not sure if that was the right number but the entire floor of this building right next to the burbank airport and uh, so he had the keys and codes and we were just walking around this whole facility and all the different animation rooms and all those different aspects of uh, doing a show it's uh, amazing how much work goes into just each of one of these little episodes i'm i, for, I forgot how many frames per second you know these these cartoons are, but they have to, they, with computer guided uh, or with guidance, they, they do these uh, animated frames to put out these shows. But anyway, so after we finished doing all that, a, a few days later, he sent a, uh, a, a an animated or a, a artist's depiction or cartoon of everybody. And everybody was looking like I am here in my avatar. Um, and uh, I asked him when, when I started my, show a couple of years later, I said, is there any way you can do like a quick, you know, animated avatar thing for me? And he actually sent me a, an animated GIF or a GIF if you prefer. Um, and it was like nine or 10 frames and I don't know what happened to that thing, but an an animated Jeff, an an animated Jeff, not an animated Jeff. Thank you. (laughs) Um, thank you, Liz. Um, so this is one of the frames that I picked out of the thing. And I think my eyes actually, because you're mentioning it kind of look a little cross-eyed there. I think my eyes actually move around and maybe actually close like, like blink, um, like once or twice in the animated. You just captured it in that position. Yeah. So I just, I just picked one of the frames to use as a still. And I really wish that I could find that original, uh, animated GIF, GIF, GIF thing, but, uh, I can't, it's gone. Anyway, so that is the story of how that little... It's a brilliant story. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, so I mean, like I I, I know a a, a Simpsons animators celebrity guy. 
Uh, he does a podcast as well. I, I forget what he what he calls it or a blog, maybe maybe not a podcast. Anyway, really nice guy, really great guy. And uh, anyway, thank you, Luis, if you're listening. I doubt it, but yeah, you never know. So there we go. So I asked Jim to uh, to alter it, and there you go. Now I haven't haven't changed all of the instances of my light brown hair and light brown mustache versions yet. I'm still kind of working through all the different places where, where we have that art. It, it turns out there's a lot of different places and I'm <laughs> not sure exactly how to change my header in the, on the website. It's still, it's still the old one. Yeah. I'm still trying to figure and trying to remember because it's been so many years since I've, I've done any work on the website and uh, I, I've forgotten how to do it. So anyway, maybe uh, a rush can, uh, can uh, help me with that. But uh, anyway, so there you go. Now I hope that Adam is happy that at least some of the instances of this art have been updated to my new state. Well, I'm very impressed with the accuracy because they've actually made your mustache slightly whiter than your hair, which is true to life. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was noticing that as well. I was like, wait Ah, a minute, you're not the same. And then I looked at Jeff and I was like, oh. Actually, that's that correct. It's absolutely perfect. The only thing you're missing, of course, is a pair of glasses. Glasses. <sighs> Did you always have glasses on now? <laughs> what are you talking about? See the right, cross-eyed just a little bit? Yeah. 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 There we go. Perfect. <laughs> so now I'm going to, uh, I don't see anything without my glasses on, so. Yeah, well, okay, maybe that'll be the next iteration. Edition. I'll ask mm-hmm. Jim to oh, before the wheelchair. Put the before the wheelchair. Thanks, Liz. <laughs> wow. Man. Wow, that was charitable. Yeah. Uh, not, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Not at all. Okay. Well, we spent way too much time on that one. So thanks, Adam. Yeah, worth it. Ah, uh, it was a good bit of history. Minutes, I like that. Ten minutes till plain tail time. Okay. Uh, let's see. Number four from Texas Charlie. He sent another cartoon from recent comments by Captains Jeff and Nick. It seems this pertains to instructors in the Air Force as well. Adios, Texas Charlie. And this, of course, is uh, well. I'm not sure. Is this a uh, Larson cartoon? It no, looks no, 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 it's not. Uh, so we're at the uh, obviously at uh, the the gates, the pearly gates, and the angel is looking at his comp- his laptop. I guess they're going modern now. Uh, yeah, St. Peter is looking at his laptop, says uh, here that you're supposed to be in hell. But since you worked as a flight instructor, we can actually count that as time served. <laughs> mm. I hope that's true. <laughs> I have some time served. And I know that Captain Nick does as well. Yeah. yeah no flight instructor so. time for me. Oh, uh, I'm Uh-oh. not sure you'd want to. Mm. I'll take a pass. Yeah. yeah. I uh, I didn't. I don't, I don't think uh, either Captain Nick nor I really wanted to do that. We were kind of told that we were going to do it. I was, you were, you were voluntold. Yes, I was not, I was not a volunteer at all. Anywho. Uh, so I think that uh, for this next piece of feedback, we should play this. Now that is not me singing. Is that you, Captain Nick? No, I think it's Sade, isn't it? I, okay, yeah, yes. Right. But the other voice that I'm hearing there, was that your voice? I, I, I couldn't hear another voice. Uh, okay. Sorry. 
Yes. The answer is yes. <laughs> okay. Captain Nick has a very nice voice. Um, anyway, uh, we received this from uh, boom operator, Chris, uh, some audio feedback and, uh, let's see. He, uh, let me read this. Hi, Captain Jeff, Captain Nick, Dr. Step, Miami, Rick, Liz, and the wonderful APG community. Boom operator Chris writing in with feedback again. Hopefully you're not getting tired of me. No. Before I get to the crux of my feedback, I wanted to give an update to my last feedback, asking Dr. Steph how she got upgrades as a passenger. I took her sage advice and purchased an extended legroom seat for the wife and I for our flight to and from Honolulu. My Honolulu. I don't know. I have trouble with that word. My back. Honolulu. Honolulu. My back and knees. Thank you. Now, Captain Nick, as much as this pains me to say it, I thoroughly enjoyed my first flight on an Airbus product. The pilot flying for the landing at both Honolulu and uh, Sacramento rolled it on. On the return flight, we were sitting over the main gear and I could barely feel the landing. Haven't felt a landing like that since I was on the KC-135. In case Miami Rick isn't on the show when you air this feedback, here is my theory why it was so smooth. No, the plane doesn't do the landing. They're just not built as tough as Boeing and have to be handled delicately. I do jest. At the end of the day, an airplane is an airplane, and I love them all. Yeah, I think we all do. We have fun. Absolutely. Uh, Okay, now to the main point of my feedback. In episode 518, our big-ass fan Greg wrote in asking about why aircraft arriving at Lexington, uh, K-L-E-X, get vectored right over his factory, and then sometimes they don't. While I was listening, I was thinking to my, oh, yeah, there is uh, Fanny, the, uh, the American version of Fanny, not the, uh, not the British, uh, because I'm, it wouldn't be a, a, a family show if we, uh, anyway. uh, so, um, while I was listening, I was thinking to myself, huh, if captain Jeff can't answer this question, I know the perfect guy that can, my really good friend happens to be a controller at Lexington. He doesn't listen to your podcast. He likes to listen to that other podcast where they don't use their real names but I asked him to listen to Greg's question and he was more than happy to answer his question. I'm happy to report. He is now the newest member of the APG community. Yay. Give it time. He'll get the syndrome attached is the audio recording. We did to answer Greg's question. He said, it might be a tad too long. That's fine. Uh, You might want to cue the rickets. He and I are like Miami Rick. When we start talking about something we are passionate about flying, controlling air refueling, we will describe it in depth, whether you asked for that information or not. <laughs> that pretty does, pretty much does uh, sum up uh, our, our our wonderful. We love him so much, Cap uh, Miami Rick. Um, so big ass fan Greg here is the in depth answer as to why aircraft get vectored over your factory from the home of Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Keep the blue side up, unless you're keeping up foreign relations. Boom, operator Chris. Um, he said, I was a PS captain, Jeff, I had a chuckle when at the beginning of my last feedback, you played the song smooth operator. That is the unofficial theme song of tanker crews. If there was a tanker crew in the all ranks club, formerly the O club, and that song came on instead of singing along and saying smooth operator, we would shout boom operator. It was our way to make our presence known to all the fighter pilots. So captain Nick, just remember N K A W T G, which stands for Nobody kicks a nobody kicks a word without tanker gas. Oh, nobody kicks a s s without tanker gas. Yes, right. 
That's the the uh, that's, A word. That's the A word. Yeah. Gotcha. A hyphen word. Absolutely. Been, uh, quick, okay. Yes. Quick shout out to my. No, good, I, yep. Sorry, I was just going to say I didn't first hear it in the O Club. It was in a hotel, uh, which is kind of synonymous with being a pub in Australia in Darwin. And it was during a major exercise up there and um, all the fighter pilots and all the tanker crews and everyone was in there and the DJ played this music and all these tanker crews stood up and started <laughs> singing Boom Operator. I thought it was so cool. I've never forgotten that. It was great. Well, I'll tell you why. With your plane tales, you have done so many great um tales of the uh, amazing things that these boom operators and tanker pilots have done over the years that, uh, you know, I think many of us would never have known about had it hadn't not been for, you know, you, uh, telling us the tales. And, uh, I uh, think, that, yeah, great respect to them. Absolutely. They yeah. do a, a fantastic job. And then, uh, PSS post, uh, let's see, post sub, Postscript script. <laughs> uh, quick shout out to my good friend BY or Bravo Yankee. You know who you are, who I just found out is an APG listener. Don't be shy. Write in feedback. All right. So there it's calling you out, BY. And so now let's play this uh, piece of uh, audio that uh, Chris ended up having this online audio conversation that they recorded. And it's mostly his. Uh, controller friend uh, telling us about why uh, sometimes the vectors for finals at Lexington and probably a lot of other airports uh, are are adjusted in in certain ways so let's have a listen so it it's all based on the traffic I want the traffic that we have is at the time um, but we know that air carriers want to be established on final at or outside, just outside the final approach fix. And so because of that, we base everything air carriers do off of the final approach fix, either bridle for runway 22 or blade for runway four. Um, the final approach fix bridle on 22 is 6.6 .6 nautical miles from the threshold of the runway. How do I know this? Be even though the localizer doesn't have DME, if you go to the plan view of the approach plate, I'm sorry, not the plan view, the uh, profile view of the approach plate, and you look at the distance on the bottom from the threshold to bridal locator outer marker, it says 6.6 .6 nautical miles. So you can see that there if you pull up the approach plate. Um, so based on that, if I'm running a sequence and I need to get a 121 guy inside of a straight in or somebody on the other on the other downwind or something coming from the other direction, I'm going to turn them and base them just a beam bridle. And I'm going to tell them, uh, once I got the field inside, I'm, I'm going to tell them cleared visual approach runway 22, make your base, make your final turn at or inside a bridle, contact the tower 119.1. Now, if it's not busy and they're coming in from the east, over um, east or um, sometimes from the southeast, basically over from, from the Charleston VOR area, 
or from the southeast, even from the Atlanta area, I'll tell aircraft to proceed direct bridle if they're number one for the field. Because there's no reason for me to give them extended vectors or put them into the downwind if they're number one for the field. I want them to get on the ground as fast as they want to get on the ground. And when I clear them for the approach, and they're on a, and most of the air carriers do this, when I clear them for the approach and they're on a almost perfect or perfect base heading, direct bridle, and I clear them for the approach, about 80% of the time, they won't turn out. They'll just join final at bridle. Same is true for the business jets that we see too, because the business jets are going to go to the same place. And some of their companies have a company policy, SOP, whatever. I don't know what those guys are like, but um, the guys we don't know, the guys that aren't based at the field, we always default to the final approach fix for those guys as well. The guys based at the field, we'll keep them direct the field a little bit longer and we'll clear them for the visual approach and they're going to turn a two-mile base. And they know, we know that they're going to do that and they know that we want them to do that if we want to get them out of the way quick out of our problem. So it's all traffic dependent and at the same time, it's also weather dependent because if somebody requests the ILS approach to runway 22, if we're running on runway 22, if somebody requests the ILS approach and we've and it's a perfect VFR day out and just, you know, for whatever reason, they're like, hey, can we just get the ILS? Okay, that's fine. The approach gate, which is something, a point that we vector to on precision or correction on uh, instrument approaches is in this instance, it is a mile outside of bridle. And because the approach gate is a mile outside of bridle, if it's a visual day, is ceilings uh, that are at least 500 feet above the minimum vectoring altitude and visibilities of five miles or greater, I'm going to vector aircraft to that approach gate to intercept the final approach course. But if it's not a visual day, say for instance, say like the, the ceiling is 2000 overcast or 2000 broken, I'm not going to vector to the approach gate. I got a vector to two miles outside the approach gate to be legal. And so that brings that final back out to 6.678.6 miles. Basically a nine mile final is where that point is, that imaginary point that I'm vectoring you to turn on to the final approach course. And like I said, it's all traffic dependent, weather dependent. If it's, if it's, if it's easy for me to get somebody in, I'm going to get them in by pointing them at the final approach fix. If it's not easy for me to get somebody in, if you got to follow somebody, you're going to be turned onto the downwind or turned out a little bit more on a modified base while you while I wait for the guy that you're following to pass next to you. And then I'll base you and then tell you to report the field inside or the traffic in sight. And that may come out to be 10 miles or more from the field. 
and we do have a lot of pilot training out here too and the pilots that request the ILS approach they always have to be vectored to that approach gate or outside that approach gate depending on the type of approach that they want into the field. An RNAV approach has different requirements than an ILS approach depending on the weather conditions. Yep, I got it. So basically it's all, it's weather dependent, traffic dependent, so you can, you'll vector as needed, right? Yeah, weather dependent, traffic dependent, vector as needed. Um, but the biggest thing is, is if you're number one for the field, you're going to the point that I'm going to get you into the field as quickly as possible. I'm going to put you in a spot that's going to get you into the field as quickly as possible. I also want to kind of talk, touch on that last thing that he said in there, which was um, sometimes when you get, when he gets visual approach clearances, some uh, facilities hold on to them a little bit longer, depending on the direction that you're coming into Lexington from and knowing Acme airlines, they always come in from the south to the southwest. Even one of the patriotic uh, regionals. Oh, regional. Mm-hmm. Because we don't have their main line here. We just get their regionals. But one of the patriotic regionals that come in here, they will always come in from the southwest and get put into a perfect downwind for runway 22. I can't clear you until you pass the airport because the local controller, the tower controller, is departing IFR aircraft as well as VFR aircraft in a 90-degree cone centered on runway heading, basically, 45 degrees to the right and to the left of runway 22, or the same is where it's the same on the other end, 45 degrees to the left and to the right, centered on the runway heading to runway four. But if you're, in this instance, we're saying you're landing runway two two, you're coming in from the southwest, you're on a perfect downwind. You say you got the field in sight, 15 southwest of the field. I tell you, okay, maintain 4,000. I'll have your approach clearance here in about 15 miles. I can't clear you for the approach until you pass the field because if local launches an IFR prop climbing a three and I clear you for the approach while you're still southwest of the field, that gives you the permission to descend. And I don't want you to descend because at that point I'd have a loss of separation with two IFR aircraft. So I wanted to keep you until I know you're not going to be a problem with the local controller unless I do some kind of coordination with them um, to see if I can have you descend into uh, the area where they're launching aircraft at. And we call that, for us, we call that automatic release procedures. It's the an area just off of the runway or headings assigned uh, off of the runway that local can use to um, get them in the air and then we'll take them from there on radar. Okay. Uh, yeah, that all uh, is clear as mud, but uh, thank you for... Uh... Explain it and explain Lexington. All right. I didn't think it was clear as mud. I thought it was actually pretty clear. Made a lot of sense yeah. to me. Thank you for taking the initiative and effort to, uh, to do that recording. And it's uh, uh, hello, whatever your name is, the uh, Lexington controller. Thanks for taking the time to talk with Chris and explain um, the various uh, distances on final uh, at Lexington and, uh, 
And yeah. welcome to the APG community. Yes, welcome. Apparently. Yeah. We're, we're Glad hoping. to have stolen you over from that other podcast. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Oh, and BY is new too. And we're not sure if that's the same person or not. Oh, okay. Plain tale time. Okay. Well, now it's that time of the show. And you know which time of the show I'm talking about, our favorite time. And that's this week's installment of the Old Pilots Plain Tales. And this week's title is Audio Feedback from Phil Timmer. (laughs) (laughs) Nice one. (laughs) Hang on. That was the wrong one. (laughs) I almost started playing that too. And this week's (laughs) installment is entitled Amy, Wonderful Amy. Amy, Wonderful Amy, how can you blame The old pilot's plain tale. Amy, wonderful Amy. The 20s and 30s were times of radical societal changes, particularly in the freedoms that women then demanded. The suffragette movement, the contributions made by women in the First World War and other dramatic events had clearly shown that forward-looking women were no longer going to be content with the roles that men decided they were suited for. Aviation played its part in allowing women the freedom to tackle challenges that were previously denied to them, and although that fight for equality continues to this day, it is right that we celebrate those early pioneers who took to the air and led the way. These early female pilots, and I've dedicated several tales to telling their stories, had to face not only the difficulties and dangers of flying such early aircraft, only a few decades after the Wright's first powered flight at Kitty Hawk, but the prejudice of their male counterparts and indeed society in general. Those who held them back, however, were balanced in some part by the enormous support these early aviators received from the general public. They were adored and their daring achievements followed by vast numbers of ordinary people, amongst which would be a growing number of women determined to follow their lead in questioning the societal norms that had previously held them back. One such woman was born in Kingston-upon-Hull, usually shortened to just Hull, which lies in the East Ridings of Yorkshire, England. Its origins go back to the 12th century, and it had developed as a market town with a strong bent towards fishing and whaling, as well as being an industrial metropolis. She grew up in a middle-class family, the eldest of three daughters, born to a prosperous fish merchant. All the signs were that Amy Johnson wasn't going to follow the expected path. At school, she gained something of a reputation for being rebellious, and she went on to attend the University of Sheffield, where she was awarded a BA in economics. Whilst her first jobs were entirely conventional, her hobbies weren't, particularly after she met the rather eccentric comedian and actor Will Hay. Hay was well-known in Britain on screen and stage, and starred in many British comedy films of the period, such as Oh, Mr. Porter. He was also an accomplished pilot, and took it upon himself to teach young Amy Johnson to fly. In 1929, Amy was qualified and gained her pilot's licence with the London Aeroplane Club, but 
unlike many of her male counterparts, found it impossible to gain employment as a pilot. As a result, and with a fierce determination to make a success of her new chosen career, she gave up her job to work in the club's hangars. Her father wrote to her employer, Mr. Wood, stating, It is a matter of personal regret that Amy has found it necessary to sever her connection with your office. It appears she has got a great interest in aviation and feels that her career lays in that direction. Personally, I would have wished it otherwise, but nowadays, I'm afraid, parents' ideas do not count for much. Soon, Amy was assisting the mechanics and working on aircraft, which eventually became her full-time job. Suitably prepared, she put herself in for the examinations necessary to qualify as a ground engineer, which she passed in December 1929. She became the first woman to receive such a licence from the Air Ministry, and for a time was the only woman in the world in possession of a valid ground engineer's licence. Such was the novelty of her achievement that it came to the attention of the popular press, which elevated her into the public's eye-line. It was on the back of this wave of publicity that Amy decided to attempt a mammoth flying feat. The Australian pilot, Bert Henkler, had recently completed a record-breaking solo flight from England to Australia, which he had accomplished in fifteen and a half days. Amy wanted to better that feat. Incredibly, the longest flight that she completed to date was a 180-mile trip from Stag Lane Aerodrome in North London to Hull. Now she was contemplating a solo journey of 11,000 miles across some of the most remote and dangerous terrain imaginable. Getting the financial backing she needed was a considerably longer task than the flight itself, but eventually she won support from the Castrol oil magnate, Lord Charles Wakefield, and, despite his earlier reservations on the direction of her life, her father. For £600, she bought a second-hand gypsy moth biplane, and then set about tackling the complicated task of securing petrol and oil supplies along her route. Her journey is perhaps best summed up in her own words. I have planned to fly alone to Australia for some time now. What an adventure! I'm feeling so full of vim. I circled this date after I whispered my plans to a journalist, and he shared them with the world, so there was no going back. My plan is a simple one. Cross Europe in a straight line through Belgium, Austria-Hungary, to Constantinople, and then Syria, then following Bert Hinkler's record-breaking route onwards to Australia. Final destination, Darwin. Her aircraft, named Jason after her father's firm, was new to her. I barely know Jason yet. We will soon become acquainted, as I replenished the petrol in his gravity tank when in flight, all by hand, which was so much effort and made me feel quite unwell. I imagine I shall eventually thank Jason for this essential task. It will keep me awake across the long hours of travel. On the 5th of May 1930, Amy set off from Croydon Aerodrome 
on her epic endeavour. Initially, there wasn't much interest in the journey, with only her father and a few others to wave her off, but by the time she had reached her first major stop in Karachi, she had achieved worldwide fame. I wanted no fuss at Croydon Airport today, she said. I merely wanted to be on my way. Her journey was epic. Croydon to Vienna, to Constantinople, to Aleppo, to Baghdad, Bandar, Abbas, Karachi, Jansi, Calcutta, Rangoon, Bangkok, Singora, Singapore, Java, Surabaya, Atambua, to Darwin. Her diary is full of revelations. Crossing the Taurus Mountains, she wrote, I turned a corner, straight into a bank of thick cloud. I pushed Jason's nose down at great speed, and leaving the cloud behind, we were heading straight towards a wall of rock and almost certain death. That I am writing this diary tonight is a miracle beyond words. We swerved, Jason and I, we swerved and survived. Crossing the Euphrates, she entered a desert area. We hit some thermals, but I had no idea, as we were bumping along, where we were. I assumed, looking down, that this was unsurveyed desert. A sandstorm, too. When Jason plunged, he dropped like an elevator, cut loose from its cables. My goggles were covered in sand, and as I shook it away in order to see, we were just feet from the ground. Landing, Amy jumped from the cockpit covered the engine from blowing sand, chopped her little aircraft with her luggage and sat on the tail to hold it down whilst the storm blew out. It wasn't long before misfortune overtook her. Today we followed the black sand of the Sin Desert into India, heading for Allahabad, where the Ganges and the Yumana rivers meet. I was looking for a fort that would announce our arrival. Suffices to say, we were told that we were not in Allahabad at all. We were in Janzi, a few hundred miles from where we intended to land. I turned Jason around and off we went, but we were forced back here. My decision to avoid the first place of landing here proved to be a most terrible choice, as I located an army base from the air. Jason's engine was struggling, but the decision had been made. We bumped onto the parade ground, catching bushes and careering towards army barracks, before Jason's wing tore through a notice board. Poor Jason came to a halt, jammed between two buildings, his wing damaged. The army colonel, who viewed my terrible landing unfold in front of his home, had sent for petrol and quenched my thirst with a supply of cold drinks. Exhausted, I have directed repairs from a camp bed. Worse was to come on the leg between Calcutta and Rangoon. The rain was unfathomably heavy. We had to land, and I intended to do so at Akyab Aerodrome. Yet, when we flew over Akyab, I saw that it was flooded. So, onwards... We hit thick cloud and continued to travel through the whiteness, knowing that mountains were below. We dropped to follow a railway line, which I knew was there, as I had marked it on my maps and notes, 
and flew so low that we were almost touching rooftops. I knew there was a racecourse close to the railway and that the vast expanse of land would provide a perfect landing spot, but daylight and fuel were running out. I realised too late, with people waving from buildings, that we were aiming for the Institute's football pitch. It was surrounded by trees, so there was no pulling out or possibility of retreat. We sped past two goalposts and straight into a trench. Such an almighty crunch! I could not hold back. I sobbed and sobbed. The damage was considerable, but by good fortune she had crashed at an institute for engineers, who went to work with a will, repairing splintered wood, making new parts and sourcing more fabric for the wing. For my part, I attached Jason's spare propeller and cleaned the engine of the mud that had been lodged there by our little adventure in the ditch. Amy knew, however, that the delay might be critical. I still fear these repairs could take some time and that Hinkler's record will remain his. In an attempt to take a shortcut, Amy nearly ended up in the sea. Today I was lost over the Java Sea, having chosen to cross it as I reached the island of Banka. While the weather had looked fine ahead, it was not long before heavy rain and thick clouds forced me to fly as low as possible. This was more violent a place than I have ever encountered, unable to go on, equally unable to turn back or stay still. I circled round and round. I was more terrified and shrieked aloud for help. I didn't want to die that way. I knew that thousands of hungry sharks were waiting with mouths wide open. Unexpectedly, the sun returned and a rainbow seemed to lead her out, but another landing, this time amongst the fields of a plantation, caused more damage. After gluing Jason together with sticking plasters, another long sea-crossing faced her. Exhaustion was taking its toll, and everything seemed to be difficult. Jason's engine was faltering, and Amy felt ashamed that after all her efforts, the record she hoped for wouldn't be hers. But finally, the last flight of her momentous journey was over. We are here. We have made it. We have flown from England to Australia. Jason and I have triumphed, and on Empire Day of all days. We landed at 3.30pm after 20 days of hard work and endeavour. That last leg had been a long sea crossing, but Shell Oil had positioned a tanker halfway across should she ditch. I flew over the tanker three hours into the flight and swooped down to take in its name, the Forus. The crewmen on board cheered and waved me on. Finally, I saw Melville Island, a small dot at first, growing larger, I egged on Jason by slapping the side of his fuselage. I stood up and cheered myself. I cried and laughed alternately until I picked up the Point Charles lighthouse and turned towards Darwin. We arrived at Fanny Bay and, from overhead, picked out the landing spot amid a sea of faces looking skywards in our direction. And then 
And then I cried tears of joy, of excitement, of every possible emotion. I cast aside my goggles and jumped from Jason, in Australia at last. And now I'm heading to dance the night away. We did it, Jason and I, we did it. By now, this young girl's bravery, skill, and tenacity had captured the world's imagination, and her name would be forever written amongst history's most famous pilots. She would receive the Harmon Trophy, a set of three international trophies awarded to the year's most outstanding aviator, and on her return home, a huge crowd would greet her arrival. She was driven along the streets of London in an open-top car through a crowd of a million people who lined the parade route. Her country would make her a commander of the most excellent order of the British Empire, and her beloved de Havilland gypsy moth, Jason, would be recognised with a place of honour in London's Science Museum. Amy would continue to make remarkable flights, flying from London to Moscow in just 21 hours before crossing Siberia and setting a record time for a flight from London to Tokyo. She would set a record time for a flight from London to Cape Town, take part in air races and much, much more. The Second World War put a stop to such events, but Amy stayed flying, first as a target for searchlight and anti-aircraft gunnery training, and then in the Air Transport Auxiliary, delivering new aircraft from their factories to RAF airfields. It was during one such flight that she died. The circumstances aren't clear, but in 1941 she was on a flight in very poor weather and miles off course, delivering an airspeed Oxford to RAF Kidlington. What brought her down is unknown, a lack of fuel, friendly fire from British gun batteries or perhaps enemy fire from a German fighter. There are unsurprisingly other wilder conspiracy theories, but what we do know is that she parachuted into the freezing cold River Thames near a former ferry boat, HMS Hazelmere. She called out her name and they threw her a rope, but she couldn't hold on to it. She was drawn down into the propeller and disappeared, never to be seen again. The ship's captain had jumped in to help her, but with no luck. They dragged him out unconscious, and he subsequently died of hypothermia. Although the exact reasons for her death will always be a mystery, Amy Johnson remains an inspiration to generations of women who seek to follow her into her exciting world of aviation. Amy, wonderful Amy, how can you blame me for loving you? What a story. And what a, what a remarkable lady. And what an awful yeah. death. <laughs> I know, that's terrible. I was like, I don't know her. She must have died horribly, very young. I was like looking it up as you were telling the uh, plain mm. tale. So I was like, oh. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that but, was pretty horrific, really. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
Uh, best not think about it, but no, uh, no, I'll think of she, the you know all the amazing things she she was uh, able to do, and she and she did. She seemed to be quite an indomitable spirit, sure, and uh, quite happy to tackle uh, you know what were at the times incredibly dangerous flights. The number of people who killed themselves trying these amazing flying feats. Were, I mean, I wouldn't remarkable. want to do that now in that particular aircraft. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. No. Yeah, yeah. Despite all the advances, uh, I mean, I, I blithely said, you know, London to Cape Town, but I mean, you're crossing That's uh, a crazy the entire of Europe, the mm -hmm. Mediterranean Sea, and then the all entire of length of Africa. I mean, in a time when, particularly in the middle of Africa, the facilities that were available were absolutely minimal. No GPS uh, or anything. <laughs> yeah, had, to tape a, had to tape a map yeah. to the dash <laughs> well that's it map and compass and you know stopwatch that's that's all she navigated with so uh yeah I, you know just incredible i i i love the story she was uh um, no wonder that she captured the public's uh attention oh, for sure. uh, she, the americans adored her she did many tours of america um you know just one of those people that um, just lived life to the absolute full. Yeah. So the, the know. pictures are great. I think they tell a lot. She's always got this great smile on her face. Mm -hmm. You know, like just having the time of her life. Like, yeah, this is yeah, super fun. exactly right. And and uh, I mean that one I love. I think mm -hmm. that's fantastic. That's more like you the know, you can almost see the determination and the Empire Builders shorts she's wearing there. You know, those are great. <laughs> they are brilliant. Yeah, I mean she's completely uncaring. When you know, you can imagine her sitting on an airplane, uh, working away on an engine with hands covered in oil. And uh, the next thing, she's she's washed up and all prim and proper and going out for a nice dinner or something, you know. It's mm -hmm. just the contrast, I think, is fantastic. What a character. What a lady. Uh, what an amazing adventure uh, she lived in her short life. Well, yeah. I'm honored that you said you were you were thinking of me while writing this tale. So I, I was absolutely anything she did. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, because you know you you've got to have that adventurous spirit to be able to do any of that stuff. And mm -hmm. uh, I I kept thinking yeah. of all your achievements. I, I do I do identify with that a little bit. You know, good. That, that rings. That's what I hope. Nick needs his bed. Yeah. Right. Uh, well, Nick, you're looking a, like you. You need some little sticks to keep your eyes <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, open. I sort of hit the brick wall about yeah. 20 minutes ago. Well, hanging, I think you I'm should. hang hanging by a thread. Dismissed, sir. Thank you very much Thank for you all very your much great indeed. contributions. And no, no, no. Brilliant. Uh, I look forward to hearing the uh, suggestions for the show title. Oh, I think, we, I think we've got it. I don't think there's yeah. anything that comes close to what Liz said earlier. So just all right. Well, I just it. need Liz to remind me. And I'll catch you guys uh, tomorrow probably or the next day. All the Good best. Evening. All right. Good night, Nick. Bye. Good night. All right. So... I guess we continue with some more feedback and this one number six from duncan duncan jones in cologne germany dear apg crew wonder if you've uh, seen the story about someone really dedicated to his cause apparently one single individual raised 90 percent of the complaints received by dublin airport last year he made <laughs> twelve thousand two hundred and seventy two complaints <laughs> in the year Assuming they were working at complaining on a five-day week, eight hours per day, they were complaining every 10 minutes. Oh, my gosh. Pers yeah. That's amazing. 
Personally, Nothing better to do with your time. Personally, I'll I'd need my weekends off at that rate. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so um, this made me laugh a little bit because uh, we did have a noise complaint at the airport I fly at recently. Um, it came from um, the person who um, owns a house very close to this airport. Mm-hmm. Um, and not not so much that it's very close, but it is directly um, on the extended uh, center line off the end of um, runway five, which we commonly land on. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, he said uh, the complaint went something like, um, I don't care if you fly like neck on either side of my house, but maybe just not right over the top. I'm like, <laughs> your house is literally like in line with the final and, yeah. and not far from, you know, and you don't understand how zone. it works with airplanes landing airplanes. on runways. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, how long have you lived here? And how long has this airport been here? Yeah. Yeah. And you'd think the older the person would get, uh, their their hearing would get worse. So it, things would actually start improving over time. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, apparently uh, one of his relatives lives next door and he wasn't concerned if we flew over their house. Oh, okay. He's very nice. charitable. <laughs> very. Yeah, why don't you fly over to Bob's house? That's right. I don't like him anyway. <laughs> yeah, right. we've had a, we have an individual near one of the airports that I have flown from in the past or fly from currently who is a known as a serial complainer, Mm. you know, to the point where the FAA will show up and be like, we got a complaint. (laughs) And you know, who it's from this time. And you know, it's obvious. They're just like checking the box. They're like, yeah, like we have to come out so we can tell the guy we came out and everything is fine. (laughs) Like, yes, you were flying over, you know, appropriate areas. Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, takes every kind of people, I guess. Mm. Uh, Seven from Henry. Uh, Hello, Captain Jeff and crew. My wife, Kathy, and I are traveling through Europe on a dream trip, and we're coming to the final three days and running out of socks and clean underwear. TMI, (laughs) right? (laughs) But here I am in the laundry of the hotel close to the Schiphol Airport, Amsterdam, And I ran into a pilot studying for his change in aircraft type, I think. Anyway, sent a couple of audio files that go with this. And these are the photos of my meeting. Okay, so let's let's do this. Why don't you stay right there on that one, uh, Liz? And I'll start the audio feedback from Henry. Hello to Captain Jeff, Captain Nick, Captain Rick, Captain Steph, and anybody else who might be sitting in this week. It's Henry from Massachusetts. And I am in Amsterdam. Well, not really. I'm in Hoofendorf, I think. I'm outside the Schiphol Airport at a hotel. And I'm in the laundry getting some of our things cleaned because we've been in Europe for the last two weeks traveling. And it's time to freshen up a bit. And while we were here, my wife saw a man sitting at a table with papers spread out waiting for his laundry. And she asked what he was doing and he said he was studying for a test. And she asked if he was a student and he said, no, I'm a pilot for Dubai Airlines. So my ears perked up and I went over and said, what kind of pilot? Are you a pilot pilot or are you a student pilot or a hope to be pilot? And he said, no, a pilot pilot. And he was getting ready to either go in for one of the refreshers that 
you guys do, or he was doing a change to an aircraft type. And he told me some of the other aircraft that he's flown. He was on an Airbus 310, a Convair back years ago in the 90s, a 727, the 777, and now he's on the 737. And um, so we started chatting and being a fan of the show gave me some common language to share some tales and some things that I learned from the show. And it was fun talking with him. And I encouraged him to check out the show because I thought he might find it entertaining and he might even get a couple of laughs out of it. So when he knew that I was a geek, he said, just a minute, I've got something for you. And he went down to his hotel room and returned back with my very own Air Dubai hat. And on the front, it's got a smiley face. And on the side, on the left side, it says, fly Dubai. And on the other side, it says, on time, value for money. And I'm wearing that proudly in this laundry room in a hotel in Amsterdam, talking about the airline pilot guy with Captain Stefan. Here's his picture. We hope to have him joining in real soon to be listening to the show. Back to you guys. Oh my God. I forgot Liz. The most important piece of the show, the glue that holds the show together. I'm sorry, Liz. Please forgive me. Also, hello, Liz from Amsterdam. I said, Liz is saying hi, Stefan. I mean, uh, Henry. Hi, Henry. Henry or Henri. Henri. Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that uh, little snippet of your vacation and meeting up with uh, that uh, Dubai uh, airline captain. And yeah, yeah I do. Very cool. I, I love that. Yeah, Liz says she loves all these APG evangelists out there. That's uh, so cool. Recruiting uh, more syndrome sufferers. Yes. Each, every day, more and more, doing our damage. Okay, uh, let's see. Number niner, uh, Jeffrey uh, writes in, uh, hello, there is a YouTube channel called Pure Glide that I think the APG community would find very interesting. Tim, who runs the channel, is a gliding instructor from New Zealand who looks critically at accidents, close calls, general soaring, etc. In the video that I sent, he walks the viewer through mistakes that he made on one of his personal flights, the holes in the Swiss cheese just kept lining up for him on this particular day. Funyuns, I, funyuns. Oh, yeah, that's right. She, uh, it's um, not Swiss cheese, but uh, the Funyuns, uh, the holes in the Funyuns. Funyun effect. Yeah, the Funyun effect. I always appreciate his honesty and no-nonsense way of presenting. There's value and wisdom in these videos for all pilots, not just folks who fly sailplanes. Keep the dirty side down. And this is Jeffrey from Grand Rapids, Michigan. And... Of course, I didn't get this uh, queued up. I'll play just a little bit of this um, video on his channel just so you can get a little uh, taste of uh, this very professional, very... uh, I watched the entire video, and it's very good. It's definitely worth watching the whole thing. It's not that long. It's like maybe five or six minutes, I believe. So without further ado, let's uh, play. So it's a sailplane, glider coming in, pretty low to the ground, very low to the ground. About to align with the runway, and touchdown. Has Nick C ever done any gliding? Oh, that was not good. 
Hey, Nick Camacho, have you ever done any gliding? Oh, hey, you two. Hey, oh, you never mind. Yeah. This guy's talking. What was this idiot thinking? Oh, wait. It's me. You know, it's very easy on YouTube and social media to make yourself look really good. It's human nature not to want to show things going wrong and bad decisions being made. I think with aviation, it's critical to be really honest with yourself about what mistakes you're making and what you're not doing as well as you could be. It's also critical to share your mistakes so that others can learn from them. And that's what we're aiming to do today. So let's run through what happened. The flight didn't start off that well. Watch we this. had a near miss with another Whoa. tow combination of glider and tow plane and had to take evasive action. Hey, yikes. So that yeah. got me a bit rattled from the start. <laughs> we had a good wow. run up onto the ridges and then I ran down the ridges and uh, managed to almost not stop needing to take a couple of climbs along the way just to maintain height. But it was a pretty good run. Got some stunning views of the ocean down the South Wairapa coast. Wow. Just over the hill from Seems Wellington. Pretty. Yeah. On the way back north, we didn't quite stop and climb as we should have. And I ended up getting a bit low as I went along the ridges. But I was quite keen to not stop moving and keep the speed up. Eventually, we got to where I wanted to leave the ridge. But I was only 1,500 feet. And this was the first big mistake, is leaving the ridge when I was way too low. There was quite a big wind to push into on the way home. There were some clouds on the way home, and I was expecting to get some lift as I went underneath them, but it never happened. As I got closer to the airfield, I could see I was going to make it, but it was getting pretty skinny. The gliders were landing on the other runway, which was a slight issue because that runway crosses over the middle of the runway that I was lined up for and aiming for. I was also getting too low, so I had to make some quick decisions, and the options started running out pretty quick. There's an upper part of the runway which I uh, did eventually land on, but what I didn't realise, I could have landed downhill as it were. It's actually quite flat at the top, and I thought the slope was enough that I needed to come and approach from the southern downwind end. In reality, I could have landed up the top quite happily. So I ended up doing a downwind onto what they call the upper terrace. A small subtle mistake, and that was flying directly over trees into wind. And the reason for that is, in the lee of a line of trees, you often get quite a lot of turbulence and sink. And there's been a lot of pilots have come unstuck, ploughing into the trees, because they thought they were going to clear the trees, they get hit by the sink, down they go. It's keeping the speed up all the way around, even low level to the ground, and on the landing, we're at 60 knots the whole way around which is quite important when you get into the more turbulent conditions down low. As I turned yeah, on the finals, so the wind no, no. actually helped push me a bit further past wow. the centre line than I was expecting. That's crazy. So what were the main mistakes I made here? The first was leaving the ridge way too early. I should have stopped, climbed, and made sure I had enough height to get back safely. So I wasn't familiar enough with the airfield. I didn't realise we could land downhill, as it were, although it was rather flat. I didn't realise that was an option on the terrace. And after talking to the guys later, I learned that that's quite a common thing to do, is land straight in on that runway. 
I also could have landed in a field on the way to the airfield. Once I realised I was getting too low and it was going to be too skinny, I should have just done a nice circuit while I had the height into a paddock. So what are the key lessons learned from this incident? If you do things like this often, eventually one of these things will leap out and get you properly. Could have easily gone badly, could have easily hit just a bit more sink, clipped a tree or a fence. If you do this sort of thing often, eventually something will get you. I think the other big lesson is mistakes are often made much earlier than the actual incident. In this case, I left the ridge too early. I could have dealt with the situation much earlier and not put myself in the situation where I ran out of options. My biggest piece of advice is deal with these things as early as possible so you have more options. So this incident actually made me really think about my flying a bit. I've had a few instances this season where I've let myself get too low and start running out of options. And so that's one of the main things I'm trying to focus on and I did focus on for the rest of the season was deal with these things early. If I'm going to use my motor, use it early and stop letting myself get into tricky situations where I have to make a video about them. All right, thanks for watching. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll catch you next time. And remember, don't crash. Good advice. <laughs> yeah, definitely good advice. Don't you know, crash. I changed my mind in, in midstream thinking, you know, I think it's worth watching this entire yeah, that was great. segment because uh, that is really, really great advice for all of us pilots out there. Well, and, and not even just pilots, but everybody in, in mm -hmm. life. For you to kind don't of crash. analyze. Yeah, don't crash. <laughs> uh, I mean, even Taco or Truman, one of them. That was Taco. Uh, Taco yeah. agrees. Um, but uh, just, you know, to, to kind of be able to, you know, look back at what you've done and what you did Patterns right and what behavior. you did wrong and, you know, what you could have done better and just to look critically at, at, uh, uh, at what you're doing and, and uh, you know, and try to learn from it. I think it's very easy when something doesn't go right because of an error on your part, you know, whether it was a recognized error at the time or something that looking back is like, well, I should have really just done that differently or thought through it differently. Um, you know, it's very easy to just not want to think about it more and just be like, oh, well, that was a mistake. I'm not going to do that again. But it's actually really important to kind of debrief through that and be like, okay, well, here's why it worked out this time. But, you know, there are a lot of reasons why maybe it wouldn't have worked out so successfully. And here's what I need to do differently in the future. And I think that's what we call experience to a large degree. Yeah, we, uh, my, my boss at work pushes critical debriefing quite a bit. And there's a lot of information online about uh, the Blue Angels debriefing process. You know, and it's pretty interesting to go read about, um, you know, kind of how they approach that and how... Um, the attitude and the mindset towards, you know, owning up to their mistakes and how they're treated for kind of fessing up to things. Right. And that is like the most critical of critical debriefs. When you, you watch, you know, some of the videotaped, um, there are various examples of, of their debriefs, you know, and they're, you know, they're debriefing things down to like, if they, as they're on the little March out to their airplane, you know, if one guy, turns too soon or does whatever but it's you know it all goes to the, that mindset of um like you said being super critical uh with your previous errors just to ensure that you're you're cognizant of them so they don't happen again right mm -hmm. and did you say you do have some experience uh gliding yeah i got a i have about 12 hours so cool. i got 
I got pretty close to taking a check ride and then uh, started flying powered airplanes and never looked uh, back. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> gliding or soaring is a lot like skydiving, right? Like it's a big operation. It takes all sorts of logistics to get set up because you got to have an airplane. You got to have people to help run the, at least in training gliders, right? You got to have people to help run the wing. It's a, it's this, it's this big thing. And, uh, it is harder to do when you have less time. Right. And mm-hmm. so when I got into powered airplanes, now it's like I could go soaring and, it, you know, be gone all day and get one or two flights in because of the big machine that it is. Or um, I could run out to the hangar for half an hour after work and go flying like that. And I know that that's not how they all work, but the place where I soar, you know, it's just. No, I think that's I think that's actually pretty common. You know, it's a it's definitely a club atmosphere and a community atmosphere mm-hmm. and there's a lot of you know you put in your time to help other people um yeah, exactly you know do what they need to do as well in addition to you getting your time in yep i do want to finish it someday but mm-hmm. i have know. i have zero experience gliding soaring but it looks amazing it is I kept my speed amazing. up i was doing 60 I'm like what yeah. <laughs> sounds yep. so slow yeah hmm. all right I, Go before ahead. i was just gonna say before we move on i I think I don't think we ever mentioned the other airplane thing, but Steph and I both kind of made utterances when we saw that. And so when we were both kind of like, whoa, that was at the very beginning. Yeah. That, yeah. That, uh, was, that was another close. tow plane going right, right underneath them. Like mm-hmm. another tow plane glider pair going right. Mm-hmm. Under yep. The video and I, I bet they did not plane. see them until. <laughs> no. I mean, so, you know, if you fly at uncontrolled fields, this happens sometimes. Yeah. There's someone out there yeah. in something small doing something you don't expect and you don't see them until you go, Oh my gosh, they're mm-hmm. right there. Yeah. So, and you have no idea if they saw you and half the time they don't have a radio. So you have right. no idea. Yep. Yep. Wow. Mm-hmm. Crazy, crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. Big sky, big sky theory. <laughs> Thank God for the big sky. Yep. All right. Uh, number 11. I think we're going to go with this one here. Larry geezer in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. I made a short cross country flight recently to a nice hyphenated Midwest airport. They greeted me as I arrived. I, they slapped the chocks under the tires of the Cessna 172 SP and gave me a ride to their just renovated FBO. Very clean and modern. Then I saw this sign on the door. <laughs> I, I know there must be a reason for this. Geezer out. So what we're looking at here is uh, the sign says pilot lounge. And then right below the letters, it has Braille. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. So I guess that if you're a blind person and you're looking for something in particular, like a restroom or whatever, and then you put your fingers on it and go, oh, pilot lounge, that's not the right door for me to go through. Maybe. Maybe that's what's happening here and not well, blind pilots. <laughs> yeah, not not blind pilots. This just, you know, this comes back to our uh, <laughs> Americans with Disabilities Act and accommodations yeah. and things. And yes, yeah, I guess. We could but yes, a, it, a it does kind usage. of insinuate that perhaps there are blind pilots out there. Right. And um, I don't know. I'm sure I'm sure folks who have limited sight have mm. had the opportunity to experience that with appropriate um, safeguards in place. Well, after Perhaps. some firm landings I've had, I've been accused of being a blind man. <laughs> <laughs> so they're out there. Uh, let's see. Uh, what do you think, Liz? 12? Yeah, 12, and then I maybe wrap it up. Okay. Um, let's, uh, let's do that. Okay. 
concerning airlines. Uh, oh, he says, speaking of open and honest communication concerning airlines, as Steph was saying, it's definitely better when pilots keep their passengers informed when things may not be up to snuff while waiting for a flight to depart, even if it's not good news. To me, a frequent flyer, it seems that most of the time when there are issues on any airline, the SOP is to not say much to the passengers at all. Is this something that the airlines do as a regular procedure or perhaps just some airlines? I've been on a few flights waiting 20, 30, or even 60 minutes to leave the gate and have not received one announcement as to what may be happening. They seem to wait as long as possible to bear the bad news that there may be an issue that means the flight can't go, as if there was some psychological study done that tells them that people will sit quieter for a longer for longer if uninformed. Uh, I'm with Steph on this one. It would definitely it would most definitely be better to get any kind of update more often, even if it's not good news. Leaving the passengers in the dark to assume the worst doesn't help the overall atmosphere of the cabin. Tension and disgust run rampant back there much quicker than you think, Mark. And uh, speaking of Basler, uh, he's a fueler up there at Basler in Oshkosh. Um, and and Mark, if you've listened, I know you've listened to the show for for years, and you've heard my my opinion about this, and it matches with Steph's as well. And I put it into practice. I uh, always try to keep the lines of communication open and frequent, even if I know that it's not going to be news that they're the, the passengers are wanting to hear. I've even witnessed myself as a deadheading pilot or a non-revenue pilot sitting in an airplane on a taxiway and there is no communication why we haven't moved in 45 minutes. And then the most interesting things that I hear from the passengers sitting around me uh, as to why this is happening, which are completely I mean, they just could, start inventing things. Yeah. It's so amazing. Like some, how, some expert who, you know, I fly all the time for mm-hmm. XYZ reason, and this is what's going on, definitely. Yeah, they're sure. doing that because that's somehow they're going to make more money if they, you know, sit off to the side and not up. And they get, mm, no, I don't think no, that that really does any no. good for the schedule and the company. And, and in fact, uh, the SOP uh, in our, in our, flight operations manual for my airline uh, specific, uh, specifies specifically, um, specifically specifies specifically specifies that uh, we are to make PAs at certain intervals when we're delayed for any reason. And, uh, you know, so that, that doesn't necessarily mean that people at my airline follow this guidance. In fact, I no. have witnessed the fact that they don't always. So I think this is very individual dependent, mm-hmm. you know, what um, any particular pilot is comfortable doing. Some people, um, even after they've been flying for a very long time and perhaps flying for the airlines for a very long time, are not comfortable making PAs. They yep. just don't know what to say. They're not sure that it's going to come out correctly. Mm-hmm. They get nervous. Um, I don't know. I think that's that's part of it for some people. I think some people maybe just don't care. Some people don't consider that, hey, maybe the folks in the back of the airplane want to know what we're up to as well. Um, but then there's a lot of, of the opposite as well. There's a lot of um, pilots who are very good at making appropriate PAs, keeping people in, informed, and it definitely goes much smoother when that happens, Yep, I think. I do too. That's my philosophy. And uh, we're going to end this show with something kind of cute. Um, that, uh, here, I'm trying to get this, uh, set up 17, I believe it's 17. Hang on. I'm trying to upload a video. Um, is that it? Okay. Yep. That's it. Uh, Texas Charlie, uh, writes in and he sends us a little video. He goes, 
So this is how pilots do it. And here we go. And that's that's how we make the PAs every five minutes. Mm-hmm. Just microphone from like the crappy, you know, head earbuds. Just yeah, stick you it stick it right in your all the ma- way in your mouth. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I knew there was a reason why they were always so consistently terrible. Yes, mm-hmm. we do that on purpose. We don't really, we want you to know that we are trying to communicate with you. We just don't really want you to know what it is we are saying. Yeah. There's a person up here who's doing something. I don't want you to know anything about what it is that I'm doing. It's the thought that counts, I think. Mm-hmm. Anyway, thank you uh, for sending that in. I think that was very funny. And uh, again, that was from Texas, Charlie. And we're going to, we're going to end that uh, or end it on that. And uh, we have some other uh, really good pieces of feedback that are in the queue here that we want to talk about, including a bullet hole through a Cessna 172 that was up there flying. Somebody mm-hmm. shooting at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brad uh, in uh, the Charlotte area. Brad Nunn. Brad Nunn uh, gave us um, something to talk about uh, regarding a French B A350 incident. I've never heard of that airline. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, a lot more. So. If you want to add to our feedback, please uh, feel free to do so and send it to feedback at airlinepilotguy.com. And you can record some audio feedback, which we love, and uh, you can attach it to the feedback uh, email, or you can use SpeakPipe, which is available on our website, airlinepilotguy.com. You can, uh, in the Contact Us section, you can do a recording on SpeakPipe if you'd rather do it that way. Uh, lots of other great stuff on our website, airlinepilotguide.com. And we're also on social media, or what I like to the chagrin of Dr. Steph, uh, to call Socialmeads. Yes, the Socialmeads. Yeah. We're on Facebook. You yeah. can go to facebook.com slash airlinepilotguy. You can also head over to Twitter. We are at APG Crew, and we've got individual Twitter handles pinned to the top of that page for your perusal. And also Instagram, APG crew. Um, I thought I was being remiss in um, not attending to my posting duties of Nick's wonderful, Captain Nick's wonderful artwork. Um, But turns out when I got my new phone a long time ago, I never, um, I've not been able to log into my APG Instagram account. And I don't think I have that information still. I remember the last show we were saying that I was going to give that to you. Yeah. And I forgot about it too. It's okay. Okay. Um, You know. Um, so, uh, what my point really is, is that you should not be a slacker like me. If you're going to be a slacker, go over to Slack and Hillel will tell you about that. So speaking of the devil, Hillel, uh, he's, I think he's filling up, is he filling up the bathtub? Sounds like it. Yeah. Okay. Um. Or else the toilet's all running over. I hope not. Hey, Hillel. Hello. Can you come over here and uh, tell us all about Slack? Okay. Here he goes. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha, Charlie Kilo, at airlinepilotguy.com. Or 
send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. All right. Thanks, Hillel. Appreciate it. Jeff, which washcloth is mine? I really wish you would stop moving them. He's easily confused, apparently. Uh, well, so you get oh, one that looks nothing like yours. It, it's the one that's all dirty and grody. <laughs> all right. Uh, yeah. Uh, with that, uh, oh, before we go, we need, of course, to say thank you, thank you, thank you to Liz and all the great work that she does in the background and Thanks, foreground, as she is now. And uh, we do appreciate that. You know it. And uh, it wouldn't be the, the same show without you. So we really appreciate you. And until next time, wishing you all clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Talons, Douglas. Cheers, y'all. See ya. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Good day. Such a good, good pilot Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline pilot guy I fly America oh, Airline pilot guy He can't land in heavy no friends cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline pilot guy